Hi, welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about artists in their own words, which is a fancy way of saying that one of us reads an artist's memoir and then tells the other one about it. Uh, I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And who are we talking about today? Do you know where you are, Chris? Where am I? We're in the jungle. Oh no, that sounds terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna die. We're talking about Duff McKagan today. Uh, Duff McKagan, famed bass guitarist of... The beautiful bass guitar playing giraffe of Guns N' Roses. He's really tall. I think he's... Wait, he's like at least... I think he's 6'2 or something. Brother has a ton of neck. He's got <laughs> neck for days. His neck is uh, like Led Zeppelin in that it's a stairway to heaven. Wow. Heaven being his beautiful golden locks. Duff McKagan is 6'3". Um, he's, a, he's a tall little noodle. <laughs> um... We're going to talk about Duff McKagan, and first we're going to talk about why we're talking about Duff McKagan, which is that when we went to Coachella last year for the first time... We're some of those bad millennials who go to Coachella and enjoy it. In our defense, it's it's really fun, guys. We went to Coachella, and Guns N' Roses was headlining. I believe it was their first time that they had reunited. They would played like a couple shows. Yeah, but years, this was at least since Chinese Democracy came out. Yeah, so this was a big deal. But like, I had not. I thought of Guns N' Roses as honestly like a joke. Yeah, we kind of went to the show assuming that they would be like a novelty at best, and they kind of were. Yeah, but also really great they really i mean they really rocked i have to say (laughs) you might be thinking hearing this and being like well what did you expect it's guns of roses one of the hardest rocking bands of our lifetimes well actually but my first experience honestly i think of guns and roses was their uh, vma performance in like 2001 or 2002 i do not remember this well that was like so axel was wearing some sort of Sports jer- like a football jersey, and he okay. had cornrows. And okay. oh, this doesn't sound Bucket <laughs> Buckethead was the guitarist because I mean we'll get into this later, but like Axel basically wrangled control of the Guns N' Roses name, and so he can put whoever he wants in Guns N' Roses, and so it was just like this weird mashup. It's, it's always great when a band becomes more of a legal entity than a performance group. Oh, that's basically what happens here. Not to you know spoiler alert. I think everyone basically knows what happens to Guns N' Roses, but. Uh, uh, it was. I remember people making fun of that performance afterwards because Axel had ran. Ar- he ran around for the first like a minute and a half of the song. I assume it was "Welcome to the Jungle," and then he got totally winded and was just kind of like heaved over. And it was just like you know he's bloated. He looks weird. It was I mean, just excess he- in the wrong way. was bloated when we saw him he was he had recently broken his leg in one of their like warm-up gigs for this coachella gig and so he was sitting in dave grohl's rock throne Mm -hmm. uh which again we thought added to the thing of like oh this is gonna be like a dumb goofy state fair type performance yeah but goddamn can axel rose really fucking sing and really sing very well live well i think that's why he sang so well is that he couldn't move (laughs) (laughs) he was just he was sitting he He could could fully breathe all of his chi into just the singing part of the performance yes so we saw guns and roses they were amazing remember when like those sexy nurses would come out (laughs) 
Yeah. He was it, it helped that he was like really leaning into I am a rock star who is like wheelchair bound. <laughs> so I'm going to have like sexy orderlies like come out and bring me things during the uh the performance. What was amazing about that was that he got these strippers and the strippers really did I mean I they they had to be strippers. I I that's just the look. They but they look exist. like eighties strippers. Like I feel like strippers don't look like that anymore and they found ones that still look like the way like they look. Feathered hair and like stuff like that. Just stacked in a certain way that like yeah. maybe the maybe milk is different now. Like maybe people are just not getting the same nutrition that they got in the eighties that caused these bodies <laughs> to look so banging uh i wonder there's got to be like talent agencies that exist for that specific <laughs> realm where you're like more than a stripper but like not quite a model like basically music video model like a realm kid, yeah like a video vixen which i'm sure was like a huge industry from like i guess probably 1992 to like 2007 and not as much anymore yeah yeah but well now they're all instagram models that's true which is an even different classification of 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 you know, body and presence and is also like, you're basically a stripper with a marketing degree. <laughs> yeah. You're like a stripper who knows how to use hashtags. Um, Which is like what they teach you in marketing degrees, right? Yeah. Hashtagology. Yeah. That's it. That's what you can pay a lot of money for at community college. Anyway, um, we saw Guns N' Roses at Coachella and, you know, Axel was Axel slash was great. He wore a lot of rings. Uh, but really the real story for both of us was who like Duff McKagan looks so good. He was so sexy. Well, he's clearly the he's clearly the member of the band that time has ravaged the least. Yes. He's uh, pres- he's so well preserved. <laughs> Slash also has this like certain beefiness where he's been it looks like he's been almost ripped for like 30 years. Like he has big <laughs> thick like tree log arms, but yeah. they're not muscular, but they are Thick. You. It looks like if you touch them, that there would just be like a like maybe like three quarters of an inch of give. Just <laughs> but like, then hard. But underneath. then hard underneath. But just like, for you know, firm but tender, uh, is how I would describe slashes. So, you, so you've got like two semi bloated members who are like clearly the the talent nexus right of Guns N' Roses. Not to disparage Duff. But, like, you know, this legendarily hostile relationship between, like, one of the all-time great lead singers and one uh, one of the all-time great uh, lead guitarists. Mm-hmm. And then over to the left, there's this beautiful bass gazelle who's just, like, smiling <laughs> and plunking away at the bass. He's got, he's, like, ripped, but he's not obnoxiously ripped. He, like, he's got this beautiful mane of blonde hair, which is, like, longish, but not too long. He just looked, like, I was just like, what is his, what is his deal? And then we figured out, I think a couple months later, you might have sent me, like, a Wall Street Journal article that was an excerpt of his memoir, which came out in 2011, uh... And I had no idea that it existed. I didn't know I was supposed to care. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, yeah, like this, this actually really matters. The curveball reveal that in addition to his career as a legendary bassist, he had a secondary career or maybe a second act as a wildly successful financial planner yeah. and, uh, slash startup investor. He was one of the earliest investors in Amazon. Starbucks. And has, Starbucks and has taken that financial success and spitballed it into his own wealth management firm that almost exclusively or mainly handles the wealth of other rock stars. Yes. So then I was like, who, who is he? Who is, who, who is Kagan? So we, I read his memoir and we're going to go through his life and figure out how he went from rap scallion ragtag member of late eighties, legendary, uh, 
they're not like hair metal, are they? Is that how you? I mean, there's hair and there's like a little bit of metal, but well, I don't we know can, if it's like hair metal. We can metal. talk about it later, but Guns N' Roses is also fascinating as like this last, like both the uh, um, the zenith and the end mm-hmm. of a certain type of '80s hair metal, but is like in the end just rock music. Yeah, it's you know if you played it to an alien, like if you needed to play rock music to an alien, like I feel like this would be a safe bet. Yeah. If if somebody was like, what did the uh, the culmination of like the first forty years of rock music yeah. sound like? You'd be like, oh, it's Appetite for Destruction. Yeah, that like closed the book on one chapter of rock, and then like you know a few years later, grunge hits, and there's like a whole new style thing, and there's like college rock and indie mm. bubbling up under it. But that's like that's like the top of a certain rock ladder. Yeah, they they kind of played themselves by being so good. Uh, or just so rock. Uh, so I would say let's let's dive into Duff's uh, memoir, which is called "It's So Easy and Other Lies." Uh, David Frick of Rolling Stone is that how you pronounce it? Frick. Is it F R I C K? E F R I C K E. Anyway, I'll figure that out. We'll fix that in would post. It, would it be David Frick? Frick? Fricky? I assume uh, it's Frick. He uh, the blurb on the cover, David Frick or Fricky or whatever says it's a no nonsense tale of true hell and rock heaven, which I think I mean. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> well, I, think really that, is. I think that that's like a classic memoir thing where it's like, well, it's like the behind the music, you mm-hmm. know, you can't have the yeah. the the pleasure without the pain or whatever. Yeah. It'd be like calling your memoir the glory colon before the fall. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds good. Hopefully someone called their memoir that eventually. Um, OK, so let's let's dive into Duff's memoir. Uh, he starts at his rock bottom, which is a great place. Actually, he technically starts it with like a foreword about his children, um, and it's adorable and dorky, but I, I don't really care about that. I think we need to start at Wait. Duff's personal rock bottom. So it starts in media res? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Classic. That is exactly Classic where it starts. Technique. All good books start that way. Uh, anyway, let's, let's get going. Uh, the morning of May 10th, I woke up in my new bed with sharp pains in my stomach. Pain was nothing new to me, nor was the sickening feeling of things going wrong with my body, but this was different. This pain was unimaginable, like someone taking a dull knife and twisting it in my guts. The pain was so intense I couldn't even make it to the edge of the bed to dial 911. I was frozen in pain and fear, whimpering. There I was, naked on my bed in my dream home, a home I had bought with the hopes of one day having a family of my own to fill it. I lay there for what felt like an eternity. The silence of the empty house seemed as loud as my raspy, muffled moans. Uh, he has a lot of different ways to describe, uh, like, just the sounds <laughs> of being in pain. Um, never Does he bef- gurgle at any point? I don't think he gurgles. It's not that bad. Does he blubber? You might blubber a little bit. Never before in my life had I wanted someone to kill me, but I was in such pain, I just hoped to be put out of my misery. Then I heard Andy, my best friend from childhood, come in the back door. He called, hey, what's up, just as he had ever since we were kids. Andy, I'm upstairs. I wanted to answer, but I wasn't able to. I could only silently sob. I heard him start up the stairs. He must have seen my wallet in the kitchen. He made it upstairs and came down the hall. Oh shit, it's finally happened, he said when he reached my room. I was thankful to have my friend there. It was comforting to think that I would die in front of Andy, but he had other ideas. He pulled some sweats on me and began to try to move me. He must have felt a jolt of adrenaline. Otherwise, there is no way Andy could have carried the 200 pounds of dead weight of my bloated body. As he carried me down the stairs and out to his car, the searing, stabbing pain in my intestines spread further down to my quadriceps and around to my lower back. I wanted to die. 
The doctor I'd had since I was a kid lived just two blocks away, so Andy took me there. Though Dr. Brad Thomas was my longtime physical physician, I hadn't let him see me very often once I descended into full-blown alcoholism. Together, Andy and Dr. Thomas carried me to his first floor office. I heard my condition being discussed, and I felt the prick of a needle in my ass. Demerol, nothing. Another shot of Demerol in my ass, and again, nothing. No relief whatsoever. One more shot, again, nothing. The pain kept on spreading, and I was starting to panic. I whimpered as my spirit began to blacken and fade. They decided to rush me to the emergency room at Northwest Hospital. Dr. Thomas told Andy to drive me as it would be faster than waiting for an ambulance. He said he would meet us there. Andy drove as fast as he could without jerking the car too much. Every little movement made me moan and cry. As they put an IV drip of morphine into my left arm at the hospital, the staff asked me questions I could not answer. Name? Address? Andy answered those. How much do you drink on a daily basis? Are you on drugs right now? I just whimpered. I was mute from pain. The morphine wasn't working as I knew it should. I knew a thing or two about opiates by that stage in my life. (laughs) I knew the warm rush they offered, yet I was getting none of it. They wheeled me into a room next to another guy on a gurney. The motion made me writhe in agony. Dude, I broke my back, said the guy in the other bed, (laughs) and I'm glad I don't have whatever you have. I feel like that's like, he's clearly in good enough shape that he's able to like talk and josh around with other people that are in the room with him. Hey, I can't feel my legs, but I'm better off than you. Uh, Dr. Thomas and an ultrasound technician ran a scanner. I want to be the guy who's like broken back in a gurney, but then just tossing off one-liners at the other guys. I won't have what he's having. The the prognosis is is bad, uh, but the patient seems to be in good spirits, and he keeps roasting people. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'll be here all night, or at least until I go into surgery. Um, Dr. Thomas and an ultrasound technician ran a scanner over my organs and I saw my doctor's face go white. My pancreas, apparently swollen to the size of a football from all the booze, had burst. I had third degree burns all over the inside of my body from the digestive enzymes released by the damaged pancreas. Only a few parts of the inside of your digestive tract can handle the enzymes and the outside of your organs and your stomach muscles are definitely not among them. It just burns all that tissue. I know that it's a burn from acid, but I like to imagine that he, his, uh, appendix or his pancreas literally burst into flames. That's what it sounds like. It feels like. Like um, a part of a car engine overheating yeah. from just too much processing too much. Yeah. Uh, a surgeon with thick glasses explained the surgery. They had to take out the top part of my pancreas, cut it off, sew me back up, and then I'd have to be on dialysis for the rest of my life. Oh, God. Suddenly, this is super evocative, suddenly I understood the pleading mouthed by miserable souls back to antiquity, those left breathing after being run through with a rusty sword or scalded with hot oil. I was there. Uh, I summoned all my power to whisper to the ER doctor, kill me. I begged over and over, please kill me. Just kill me. Kill me, please. It's the name of the other punk rock book. That's the other punk rock book. Uh, This is how Duff McKagan opens his book. He drank so much that his pancreas exploded. That's pretty good, and that's pretty evocatively well-written. That all sounds extremely harrowing. So that that's where we start. I'd say let's start from the beginning, um, and we can find out well, why exactly Duff <laughs> went, got himself. What went, wrong? what went wrong along the way to have like a nice little Irish boy from Seattle end up with his, his stomach literally uh, eaten away by its own acids? Uh, well, you started with Irish boy, so we... Okay, hey. <laughs> he's already on the road. Hey. 
please please don't well, uh, denigrate both, upon my people. We both have O'Brien in our heritage. So. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so Jeff McKagan was born Michael McKagan on February 5th, 1964 in Seattle, Washington. He's the youngest of eight kids. The way he describes it is that his father started having children with his mother when he was 18 and didn't stop until he was 38. Oh, God. So that's 20 years of childbearing for Mrs. McKagan. Uh, God bless her. Dad McKagan is he's a fireman and then he's a fire inspector and his mom uh, is a stay at home mom until Duff is nine and then she goes back to work. He doesn't say where she goes to work, um, but he they split up before, right after she starts going back to work uh, because Duff's dad starts having an affair. Uh, Duff actually catches his father in bed with his best friend's mom. So I feel like lots of stories like this that sort of end in in sort of a path of destruction, appetite for destruction. There's lots of familial issues early in life. Yeah, early childhood, uh, early childhood family trauma mm-hmm. is definitely a signifier of of instability in the future yes so duff describes what happens to uh his best friend uh whose mother is having an affair with his father uh he says my best friend and i were put into the strangest of predicaments was it his mom or my dad's fault that both of our homes were now broken the important thing with something like this is ascribing blame yeah (laughs) (laughs) whose fault is it uh, we began to fight and he began to act out at home. For his father's birthday a few years later, he presented his dad with a severed head of the family cat as a present, gift wrapped. Oh, you got me what every father wants. The certainty that his son is a sociopath. Well, what's nuts is like his dad, he, his dad didn't do anything wrong. You should be giving it to his mom if he's so pissed. His dad <laughs> this is, is your fault, dad. Well, I, I wasn't even, what did I do? His dad is the, he's the, the cuck in this situation. Uh, hey, we're, we're technically in the same boat here, son. Yeah, but like, learn to, who to be mad at. Uh, <laughs> and, and certainly, what did Mr. Mittens do? God. Um, the best friend also took an axe to the outside wall of my bedroom one night when I was on the other side in my bed. All of this because my dad couldn't keep his dick in his pants. So, Honestly, like, Duff ends that sentence blaming his dad, but <laughs> between the cat and the axe to the wall of the house, it seems like the problem here might be the kid. Yeah, D- you know, Duff's not going around... Uh, beheading cats or anything like that. This isn't like his that. friend, Andy. Oh, Duff, it looks like you're in pain there. Do you need an axe? Is there anything an axe can do to solve this? I don't You know think what it's this Andy. problem needs? It looks like it needs a good axing. Right. Well, uh, just chop it out. So <laughs> it's around this time uh, that Duff is, uh, he starts dabbling in drugs. Um, he smokes pot in fourth grade. He takes his first drink in fifth grade. Fourth and he grade does is a- acid in sixth grade. <laughs> Um, he claims it is a strong grade to start drugs in. Um, yeah, I don't think I would even know how to like smoke anything when you're 10. Like that seems weird. He says, I don't even think I would have the fine motor skills to operate. anything. Yeah, I don't think I could do that. Um, and he, his, his thing is, he says it was just like, you know, everyone did that in the mid seventies. Like that, like just childhood drug experimentation is way more casual and innocent than like what would happen now. And I'm like, okay, but we see what happens to him eventually. I mean, that might be true. And also I like, I kind of imagine the Pacific Northwest. It does. It doesn't seem like it, it became like a, a real part of the country until like the eighties or nineties <laughs> <laughs> to me. Like, I can't really imagine what life was like there mm. until, I don't know, the space needle got built. Yeah, right. It's just um, frontier. It's like that movie McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yes, exactly. where it's just like a frontier town until about 1976. Yes. Yeah, and then so, the, and then there's like the punk scene. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It goes frontier sound and then the Sonics. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so Duff is a musical boy from an early age. His brother teaches him how to play bass. Um, he also learns how to play guitar. And I think he also learns how to play drums. He's kind of a multi-instrumentalist. And he starts getting into punk rock in Seattle um, by the time he's like a mid to late teen. So this is like late 70s, early 80s. Um, he played guitar in a band called The Veins. And then he played guitar in a band called The Farts. That's Farts with a Z. Farts. I thought, uh, and... I thought the farts. I thought he played drums in the farts. Yeah, maybe. I don't know what it, he's. It's the stuff I that. Know, so I was looking into was, uh, Duff's musical career, yeah. and uh, we'll play a little bit of the farts here. It really tells you like how diverse the like rock scene was at the time, because the okay. farts are like a pretty hardcore, like literally hardcore punk band, um, which sounds very little like uh, what. Guns N' Roses would become, mm-hmm. which is an extremely slick, like, highly produced rock band. But right. here, let's listen to a little bit of the farts. That sounds great. <laughs> I think, from what I read, Duff was only in the farts for, like, two weeks. He played, like... At one show with them or something or two or three shows with yeah is his early band history is a little sketchy well i think like any small music scene especially around that time there were like there were like 30 musicians in seattle and they all just joined each other's bands and like duff was in and around that band but what i really like about this uh uh farts ep or lp this is uh the farts world full of hate released on Alternative Tentacles. Um, Jello Biafria is from uh, Dead Kennedy's band. They mm-hmm. would tour up and down the West Coast together. Uh, this is one of your uh, classic early 80s hardcore EP or LPs uh, where there are uh, 16 tracks and the <laughs> LP is 17 minutes and 51 seconds long. That's incredible. Uh, so it's a real uh, a real burner of a, uh, of a of a recording. But So that's like the kind of stuff that he was first immersed right. in. Okay. Real hard, real fast, real angry. Mad at the man. Yeah. Um, I mean, my criteria for songs is they just got to be short. Yeah. It doesn't Look, matter how good they are. I can't memorize more than 70 seconds of music at a time. Yeah. So, so yeah. verse, chorus, verse, out. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Um, and then I think the band that he that Duff joins that has the biggest sort of anything is uh, called 10 Minute Warning. Well, do you want to hear a little 10-minute warning I will hear a little 10-minute warning, yes. Um, Great, because I think that the thing about them is that they had a more sophisticated, almost post-punk sound. I'm just trying to, like, track the musical journey. Yeah, that's Um, your job. My job is to read the book. To keep the facts. Your, Your job is to do the music.
almost sounds like an alt country song. Kind of. Like if Wilco had gone a slightly different direction. Um, but yeah, that's a li- you can hear it's a little more sophisticated than the uh, the farts stuff, clearly. Yeah. But the other thing that I lo- read about the farts that I loved is uh, taking a page from the Ramones, they all changed their last name to farts. Oh, that's incredible. That's great. Um, so, uh, I support that. I would be like Chris Farts. <laughs> I'd be Molly Farts. A big... Uh, Le- where like- is the lie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Um, I support uh, all bands changing their last name to all the same last name. Like, you know. Or the first name, like the Donnas. Um, Loved the Donnas. So it should be like Tom Radiohead. Tom Radiohead. Bono U2. Bono U2. <laughs> the, the Edge U2? <laughs> that's, that's maybe. That's a bridge too far. Yeah. Uh, great. So Duff is immersed in the Seattle music scene. Uh, he drops out of high school. At this point, he's like a very good student, but at an alternative high school where you don't really have to go that much. But even the very little that effort that that required, he was just he was not having it. All he wants to do is play music. Um, and then eventually, like he he comes to L.A., because he thinks that the punk scene in Seattle is kind of dying. He's got a friend who's just like, okay, it's like you need to get, someone's got to get out. Heroin is also like coming into the scene and kind of messing with his friends and one of like his high school girlfriends. So he's like, he's got to get away from that. Where where do you go to get away from that? Los Angeles. Well, I like the idea of sitting around in uh, Seattle in in, like 1985 and being like, yeah, I don't really think music here is going anywhere. Well, it's so funny. He actually does say, he's like, what? At one point in the middle of the book, he's like, what would happen if I had stayed, had I would I be in Alice in Chains right now, <laughs> or like Soundgarden? Like maybe. And honestly, like pff, probably yes. yes. <laughs> like I I feel like he would have had the persistence and the the drive to become a, a grunge leader. And then who knows what would have happened. I think that he might be too much of a pretty boy for grunge. He well he's he's pretty, but he definitely sort of roughed himself up. We'll talk about that in literally just a second. Okay. Um. So he moves to L. A. And he said. Um, the reason he moved to LA, he wants to sort of, he wants to push the musical scene for himself. But in the end, it was just a way to avoid embarrassment. I was out one night, drunk off my ass and told a bunch of people I was going to move to LA. So that was it. <laughs> Decision made. So he's one of those people, because I feel like people do that a lot of just like, hey, man, I'm gonna, I totally want to move to blah. And then like, you see them three months later, and they're like, what happened? So he actually, he, he commits, he did it. That's, he didn't want to be embarrassed. That's amazing that he's like, drunkly be like, I'll just, just show all you guys. I'm gonna move to LA and make it to LA and like the next day is like some one of his friends is like you told everybody last night at the bar you were moving to LA and he's, he's like, like oh, oh shit God damn it now I have to move to LA yeah so that's why he did it. but he also I mean he wants to go because he wants to push himself musically and he's very earnest about wanting to do something different um so he moves to LA he's super broke as I feel like anyone who moved there between you know like uh 1800 and like <laughs> 1993 was like just slept in their car yeah you just go out there until somebody puts you in a mu- in a movie or a hard rock band yeah 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 that's how you, that's how it's done um so he moves to LA uh and he starts trying to find people to play music with So he says, an ad in the free local music paper called The Recycler caught my eye during that first week in L.A. It was a want ad for a band seeking a bass player. The name to call was Slash. (laughs) With a name like that, I assumed he must be a punk rock guy like me. And if we had similar backgrounds, maybe he was also looking toward the horizon musically. Uh, (laughs) As far Hi, I'm looking for Mr. Slash. Uh, Just Slash. Uh, (laughs) Slash Johnson slash Michaels. Slash. Slash. 
Um, as far as I could tell, there was really no discernible rock scene in Los Angeles in the fall of 1984. Only the palpable hangover of a once thriving punk movement, a thriving but really bad heavy metal scene, and something called cowpunk. This was basically <laughs> punk rock dudes in plaid shirts trying to p- play Patsy Cline songs with their fat girlfriends singing. <laughs> I mean, I mean that sounds great. That sounds great to me. I think we should. Uh, delve into cowpunk a little bit more. Have you ever uh, seen Decline of Western Civilizations Part mm, One or Two? No. Uh, it's a uh, a really great series of documentaries uh, by the director of Wayne's World, Penelope mm. Spiris, about uh, the punk music scene and then the, later the metal music scene in uh, in um, L.A. around this time that describes exactly the same feeling of like <laughs> it's just like. <laughs> You know, all these scenes of, like, the members of Black Flag literally sleeping in closets in the basement of churches, like, talking about their DIY life. And then the next video, or the next movie in the series, is just, like, Lemmy drinking an entire bottle of Jack Daniels, like, in a Hollywood Hills swimming pool and stuff like that. It's just, like, goes from one one side of the coin, this, like, complete, like, dirt-nothing punk scene. And then, like, a few years later, this, like, bloated... Uh, hilarious, decadent, depraved metal yeah. scene. Oh my god! And then and cowpunk and, and Duff washes up on the shore, like right in the middle. Yeah, of all this. his timing is impeccable. Uh, okay, so Slash's ad had listed his influences as Alice Cooper, Aerosmith, and Motorhead. This was far preferable to anything else I'd encountered that first week. And anyway, I was just trying to meet people. I called Slash on the phone and talked to him. He had the same soft-spoken voice he has now. Uh, when he said the name of the band, I heard Rodker. Uh, <laughs> wow, I thought that's a really strange name for a band. I arranged to meet him and drummer's, drummer Steven Adler at a 24-hour deli named Cantor's down on Fairfax. Uh, I'll make sure. I hope this meeting was a rate. So, like, uh, what time can we meet up? Uh, meet me at the deli at 3 a.m. <laughs> I mean, yes. Uh, I'll make sure we have the first booth on the left, he said. I told him I had blue hair and would be wearing a long black and red leather coat. Hot. Nice look. Won't look. be able to miss you, I guess, he said. Uh, so, this is a. We'll talk. Duff looks a little funky. Uh, he says, One thing I already realized folks from Seattle just plain looked different in those days. When bands like Black Flag or the Dead Kennedys came through Seattle, they would always come comment on how different the crowd looked, but I never thought much about it until now. In LA, I decided to use this distinctive look to convince people checking IDs at the door to bars that I was not from the United States and thus spoke no English. (laughs) When asked for ID, I would produce my sunglasses and a puzzled look. (laughs) They must have thought I was Swedish or something, but no shit, it worked more often than not. It's a pretty good scam, Duff. Um, Not not a bad idea at all. Duff is a smart guy. Sunglasses? You just hold up the sunglasses. I, my identification? My hair is <laughs> blue. <laughs> I am sunglasses? Sunglasses? You want? Uh, yeah. Now I was about to see the other side of the coin. I headed to Cantor's in my pimp coat, as promised. This was a floor-length black leather coat with red trim. Originally, it had a big A for anarchy on the back, but I had taken a Sharpie marker and blacked it out when a Seattle band I was in disbanded. The band was called The Farts, and our logo included the anarchist A, so I assume it was Farts, and the A of Farts was an anarchist A. Anarchy will never reign as long as the Farts can't exist. <laughs> I just like that he, he just blacked it out. He's like, I'm done I'm done with this band, but I still like the coat. This, this coat is a very good coat. Also, also nothing, nothing says anarchy like a floor length <laughs> red tinged leather jacket also he's in los angeles in this, a floor length leather coat this guy knows <laughs> like, what he's doing he's sweating the blue hair dye off of his head Bl- 
<laughs> this leather coat. I walked in, looked at the first booth on the left, and saw all this fucking hair. <laughs> Somehow I'd expected these guys to look like social distortion. Instead, even though they appeared about my age, the dudes in Rodker had long hair and rocker chick girlfriends. If the sight of two long-haired rockers from Hollywood was a shock for me, I could hardly imagine having to talk to them. Of course, with my short day-glow blue hair and long coat, I must have looked like a Martian to them, too. Both parties were a little surprised and curious when we first met face-to-face. Slash's long hair, it turned out, hit a shy introvert. He was cool, though. He had a bottle of vodka stashed under the table. He and Steven weren't yet 21, either, and this was as close as they could get to a bar. Uh, I don't know. What time What time did he say to meet there? Uh, it, all he said was that it was 24 hours So long. it's 24 hours. So this could be at night. I'm, in my head, I'm picturing like 11 a.m. and just getting wasted I early. I love this image of Slash is like, I love... <laughs> I grow my hair over my eyes so no one can see my soul. <laughs> I'm shy, hence the hair. Um, I don't speak with words. <laughs> I speak with licks. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, yeah. So, that's, that's the Slash persona. Have you heard November Rain? Lol. Uh, we drank vodka and ate bowls of Cantor's barley bean soup. <laughs> I still love that soup. Uh, shout shout what, out to Cantor's barley bean soup. What are, what are you having? I'll have, I'll have a vodka <laughs> barley soup. Uh, club bouncers weren't the only people confused by my Seattle punk look. Slash's girlfriend got kind of smashed and leaned over and said, are you gay? <laughs> no, I'm not gay, I told her laughing. You have short hair. I think you're gay. It's okay. You can tell me. Do you have a girlfriend? No, I said. I just moved here. It's okay. We'll get you one. So right now, in 1984 in Los Angeles, if you have short hair, you're seen as gay. I'm also still trying to understand his hairstyle, because when I think blue hair, I imagine like locks of blue. a lot of it well i guess i'm imagining the like current blue hair look where it's like that long like like gradient silver ombre, blue ombre yeah. thing but i doubt that that was what i'm guessing was it was rocking. a li- like two inches of stringy manic panic blue hair <laughs> or like uh maybe he had it like spiked in in the punk fashion mm-hmm. yeah uh <laughs> Or the, you know, the gay fashion, as as this uh, Slash's girlfriend at the time yeah. seems to believe. It, it, yeah. It does seem hard to imagine, like, rolling up for your, like, vodka soup meeting with uh, the hair rockers in your, like, red and leather anarchist coat with your, like, stringy blue hair. Right. And one of the, these girls being like, are you? Are you gay? Are you gay <laughs> so weird. Uh, Steven Adler was really nice and expressed himself with, with an infectious, almost childlike enthusiasm. He said, listen, we're going to be great. Going to get the feet stomping and the hands clapping. He still says that to this day when he climbs behind a drum kit and gets excited. Going to get the feet stomping and the hands clapping. He's like whispering it over and over to himself like a mantra. Going to get the feet stomping the hands clapping. the feet stomping the feet stomping the feet <laughs> I love it. But um, Duff, so he meets with them. I think he plays with them a couple times, but he actually says no to being in a band with them at first because they seem too standard. And Duff, as we are well aware, he wants to push the musical en- envelope at this point. I. It's still just funny that where it's like, it's like, 19, like 1984 and Duff is like, Seattle music, not going anywhere. This slash guy, nothing. Yeah. This right. is not where the future lies. Right. Um, so Duff says no, and then he keeps kind of searching for his musical, uh, musical desires. Um, but in the meantime, he works at a steakhouse and he actually includes, and he's not making any money and he's living in a crappy apartment, but he includes some recipes from his broke LA lifestyle in the book. One of them is called Prep Chef Pollo, which is a chicken (laughs) recipe that he says he still uses to this day. And there's another one called a Hollywood noodle bowl, uh, which is just ramen noodles with an egg cracked into it. (laughs) 
Classic. I just really appreciate that he he includes the full recipes in the book, and I think that's helpful to anyone who wants to follow his path and be super broke in LA. And this not is from another anything. This is from another artist memoir, but one of my favorite ho- making it in LA Hollywood stories is from uh, Bruce Campbell, uh, who the star of classic B movie The Evil Dead franchise was talking about one of his friends moving to LA <laughs> and surviving purely on like craft macaroni and cheese uh-huh. to such an extent that he got scurvy. Oh my god. <laughs> he wasn't getting any vitamins. That's it's like congratulations, you've moved to LA and simulated the life of a pirate ship. <laughs> That's incredible. Um so yeah, he's he's broke, he's in LA. Um he gets laid off from the steakhouse. Uh, not not his own fault. They just you know the cut stakes, backs. The stakes just weren't pushing the envelope as much as no he would like. no no no. These aren't the revolutionary uh, the new steak sound that he's looking he, for. He needs that new steak and sound. Duff went on to invent Sizzler. <laughs> Do you think Sizzler already existed? That I don't know. I've never been to Sizzler. Uh, Duff starts working for an office supply company uh, that's actually really just a mob business. <laughs> he describes it as like a pistol packing guy in a tracksuit with an unidentifiable Eastern European accent. Yeah, uh, we need a we need a two hundred more cases of A4 and uh, don't look what's in the case. Yeah, he says it, he's been told to drive an unmarked truck to deliver uh, unidentifiable merchandise to different different locations. So that's his job there. But then he meets uh, some guys from this band, L.A. Guns. Guess yes. who these people are? It is Izzy Stradlin and Axl Rose. Oh, hello. Hello. Now um, all the ingredients are on the table. All <laughs> the balls are set. We just need that one cue ball to launch off and bump them all into each other. Right. Exactly. He starts, he meets them, starts rehearsing with them. Uh, we'll describe Duff's first encounter with, with Axl Rose. So he says, when I showed up at my first Guns N' Roses rehearsal in late March 1985, Axl and I said hi to each other and started joking around about this and that. I liked him right away. Whoever was running the sound then asked Axl to test out the microphone. Axl let out one of his screams and it was like nothing I'd ever heard. There were two voices coming out at once. There's a name for that in musicology, but all I knew in that instant was that this dude was different and powerful and fucking serious. He hadn't yet entirely harnessed his voice. He was more unique than great at that point, but it was clear that he hadn't moved out to Hollywood from Indiana for the weather. He was clear to stake a claim and show the whole fucking world what he had. So Duff is very impressed with uh, Axel, understandably. I mean, who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be? He's young, he's hot, he's a ginger. He's like a skinny Ed Sheeran. And when he opens his mouth, the voice of God the comes vo- out. Two, two di- the voice, I think it would be the voice of God and, and the devil. Yes, at, at the, the same, same time. time. <laughs> uh, that sounds exactly like a review of a Guns N' Roses show from around the era. Yeah. Should we listen to some LA Guns? Um, yeah, let's listen to some qu- a quick LA Guns snippet. Uh, yeah. videos from the 80s and all these like glammed out metal bands and this like high product mm. thing but it's like really funny to think of a whole scene of like metal bands scrapping or hit, like these glam hair metal bands like scrapping around for like gigs where they're playing for 20 people yeah. like you can't imagine like mid 80s hair metal 
for an audience that's less than an arena size. Right. And yet they're playing for like four people. Yeah. Like we saw something like that at a, a bar in Bushwick oh, yeah. in a back room where it was people playing essentially 80s hair metal for about 12 people. But you know what? They were they were amazing. I mean, you got to just lean in. You yeah. got to just like say, this is what's happening right now. And for this moment, we are going to completely fill up this and room. And just pretend that you're our, playing an arena. With our sounds. Yeah. Duff, he rehearses with them, uh, Izzy and Axel, and then um, these other guys, uh, Rob and Tracy, that's Tracy with two eyes. I believe that's tra- that's Tracy Guns. Tracy Guns. The namesake uh, of LA of Guns. LA Guns. Uh, so that's the drummer and the guitarist. That's how you find him in the phone book. Yeah. Los Angeles. Under G. Under G for guns. Yeah. Dial G comma, for guns. <laughs> dial G for guns, comma, Tracy. Yes. Uh, and Duff immediately picks up on something. Rob and Tracy don't want it enough they're suburbanites they're playing it safe like he just doesn't think that they're going to be like scrappy enough to really embark on the rock and roll journey that he's interested in they're not hungry they're not hungry they're not hungry and they're not thirsty uh <laughs> and prob- Duff, actually they probably are very thirsty yeah they're well yeah they're all in la um everyone is thirsty in la in the 80s uh so duff tells axel this and axel's like yeah i see what you mean <laughs> so this is maybe the last time that that he and axel like agree on something uh, wholeheartedly. Or, so the whole or group, Axel agrees with anybody else on anything. Yeah, right. That wasn't uh, immediately his idea. So the group um, is playing these piddling little shows um, and in LA and Duff says, let's book a tour uh, because he has this sort of DIY mindset left over from his punk days. He wants them to like book their own shows, manage themselves, make their own t-shirts and just rock out, uh, you know, independently. And so he makes this proposal and Rob and Tracy are not into it. They don't want to do it. They don't want it enough. And so Duff is like, like, cool, I actually hey know some man, dudes who can replace the you. The Troubadour is right here, and <laughs> then you know, the Viper Room is right down the street. That's a tour in itself. No, Why d- do we have to leave? Duff wants he wants it all. He wants he wants to hit the road and taste the 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 air out the window like yeah. a dog like a dog singing his head out of the car window. He, he wants to go where the people are. Yeah. So Duff is like, great, I have some replacements for your guitarist and your drummer. And he brings Steven Adler and Slash back in the band. Who have been just drinking vodka soups. They've just been drinking, <laughs> uh, drinking vodka soups. Like a little soup gimlet at Cantor's <laughs> uh until they were they got that crucial call. So the lineup uh all start playing together and early on they establish that they want to sound different so slash and steven are now on board for kind of pushing the envelope musically uh they say they don't want to be like the hair metal bands currently ruling the airwaves so that's like warren and poison and people like that duff wants to bring in some seattle punk rock to the mix as well as he says a couple times that he's a prince fan which i think is great um he wants to bring the, the prince funk as well uh, and so they, in order to make this sound the way they want it to be, Duff and Slash do things like hide parts of Steven's drum kit because they think that the current heavy metal drum sound with all the extra kick drums is really corny. So Steven keeps showing up to rehearsal with more and more of his drum kit missing. <laughs> I just love uh, that. Guys, all I got is a snare. <laughs> I swear there were some cymbals here last night. Yeah, just one snare. Just no, you, give it all you got. You play one snare hit on each beat and yeah. that's all we need yeah minimalism uh so the band plays their first show as the classic guns and roses lineup in june of 1985 and then they go on uh the madcap tour that duff has planned up to seattle so they're literally just trying to get up to seattle to play like three shows in seattle no wait 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 they they play as guns and roses in 1985 mm-hmm. and tracy guns is not 
involved in this. He's not involved in it. I think he stays in L.A. Guns. So clearly there's room for at least two firearm themed <laughs> bands in L.A. at this point. I just love that all these names are so name pun based. Mm-hmm. You know, Tracy Guns takes the name Tracy Guns. What's the name of the band? L.A. Guns. Yeah. After me, Tracy Guns. And I live in L.A. And I live in L.A. What else am I going to call it? <laughs> uh, or like, you know, what's my name? Axel Rose. What's the name of the band? Well, I was in L.A. Guns mm-hmm. and now I'm in my own band. So Guns, Guns and, and Roses. Roses. Although apparently they thought about naming the band Heads of Amazon or just AIDS. Oh, all capitals. Jesus. Which, um, what I was mean, AIDS going to stand for? Just, Autoimmune deficiency syndrome? Or yeah. Whatever. Oh, they're just going to name their band AIDS? All capitals AIDS. Oh my God. I guess they were thinking about like what's the most evil thing that they could think about naming it. But uh, I'm glad most that dangerous. Whoever, whoever put in the black ball on that name did because... <laughs> Terrible idea. I also like the name Heads of Amazon because why not just name it Jeff Bezos? (laughs) (laughs) It's also just like imagining that they had gone with AIDS and then released like the most selling rock album of all times. And then it's flash forward to 2016 where we have to be like, and put your hands together for one of the most famous rock bands on earth. AIDS. (laughs) (laughs) Do do we really have to say? Do we really have to say that? Oh, fine. Uh, That's super awkward. Uh, Yes. So they go uh, Guns N' Roses, fully formed, go on this tour that Seattle planned or that uh, Duff planned. Their car breaks down barely an hour outside of L.A. They're in Bakersfield and they have to hitchhike. But Duff really wants to play shows in Seattle, even if it's like four total strangers. He's just in the back of his head going like, I fucking told them I was going to move to L.A. Now I'm going to show them that I moved to L.A. Yes. Uh, They persevere and they make it up to Washington by hitchhiking, even though at one point they're so hungry that they steal and eat onions growing in a field off the side of the road. And Duff describes their hunger such that uh, the onions are they taste as sweet as apples. <laughs> I'm surprised it didn't end up in a lyric. It might have. I mean, Duff did a lot of solo work that I haven't listened to at all. So I should I should explain too that like I love memoirs so much, and I can read a memoir without knowing or caring what the person actually did in their life to deserve the memoir. Like I'm cool with just a memoir as as art in and of itself. How are they hitchhiking with a band's worth of gear? They they uh, like a, a truck tweaker, speed tweaker picked him up and was like genuinely. So you guys got jacked. a lot of guitars. You got any? Meth yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's literally what it was clear. He, Duff said it was clear that the money they had like $29 and it all went to speed. <laughs> so and that's how they got there. I mean, that's one way to get to Seattle. Speaking of speaking of drugs, uh, Duff is kind of sharing the sort of hungry, uh, uh, thirsty, early Guns N' Roses lifestyle. Uh, he shares an anecdote. One night when we were out together, Steven said to me, you know, all I want in life is to make enough money one day so I can have a bag of good weed and a big ball of crack around all the time. <laughs> I laughed. We'll never make that kind of money, I said. So, Duff and Benny Kenstead. Weed and crack? You're dreaming. I don't know what what word they have to describe what happens when you smoke weed and crack at the same time. Maybe I can can look that up real quick. Uh, It's a less glamorous speedball. It's like a fast bag. Yeah, a fast bag. Apparently, high-grade marijuana with crack cocaine added is called Buddha, but it's spelled wrong. It's just B-U-D-A. Anyway, let's keep rolling. Uh, Guns N' Roses are struggling to be taken seriously in the L.A. rock scene. The goal is to get a coveted slot. Wait, did they get to Seattle? They got to Seattle. They played the shows. They came back. Everything was fine. My God. I'm uh, so glad that Duff got to see, uh, show all those naysayers. He made it to L.A. He made it to L.A. and he moved to L.A. and it was coming back. Uh, prodigal son of Seattle. Uh 
The goal for Guns N' Roses is to get a coveted slot at the Troubadour, but instead they play shows for three people at a Chinese restaurant named Madame Wong's. Uh, and at, it's at this point in the early the early hustle. Imagine, Duff, imagine sitting in a Chinese restaurant trying to eat your lo mein, and Axl Rose is screaming in the corner. That'd be incredible. I mean, it would be impressive, but also really not what you show up for a Chinese restaurant. It's like uh, that reminds me of like sitting down in a bar to get a drink, and the door closing, and the lights going down, and realizing that I was at an open mic comedy night. Oh God, and being yeah. Like I came in here for beer. Not for the not for tears the funnies of a of a sad open night Thursday night open night uh, Mike comic. Yeah, that's always um, that's never a good feeling. But I I would assume that the three people that were there were hopefully maybe a little bit there for Guns N' Roses as opposed to for uh, Egg Foo Young. Um, <laughs> at this point of the story, Duff emphasizes that one of the secrets to Guns N' Roses' eventual success was the maintenance of their mailing list. Writes Duff, we obsessively made sure people who came to shows signed up for it. Well, actually, what we did was send stripper friends out into the audience and have them convince people to sign up. It's an early sign of Duff's business prowess. I know we talked a little bit about the beginning about his uh, his financial uh, advisory uh, group or whatever it's called. Uh, and also, this is a lesson that even when rock and roll is concerned, sometimes it really is all just about logistics and marketing strategy. Sometimes it all is just about getting strippers to, to coerce people to putting their names on a list. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and it's clear from this point of the story that at this point, the band is just sort of surrounded by strippers, almost just like their air. Like, it's just like where wherever you go, there is a stripper. Uh, like there you are. You're slurping down noodles and like this stripper comes over <laughs> to you and is like, hey, can you put your name down? I'm like, Try, I'm trying to eat this fried rice. Yeah. Well, I mean, would you really be annoyed, though, if, you know, Cindy with three eyes came up to you and was like, that's three eyes in her name. Not like she has three eyes. <laughs> I mean, um, that'd be a that weird I might stripper. be more involved in. Uh, I, I don't know. I think that it's a solid marketing tactic and something that MailChimp just, be... just doesn't really have going for it. Although MailChimp... if MailChimp wants to eventually advertise with this podcast, I'll strike that from the record. Yeah. Well, MailChimp should definitely uh, invest in some stripper marketing, mm-hmm. first of all. Virtual strippers. Stripper grams. Yeah. Stripper grams. Yeah. Uh, all about that. So... The name of this startup is Stripper, S-T-R-I-P-P-R. No vowels. S-T-R-P-P-R. And we're here to disrupt the stripping industry. We're basically a monthly uh, uh, bespoke stripper package that through our algorithmic learning system, we will learn what kind of stripper you like, personalize the stripper content to you, and send mm-hmm. a stripper to your door once a month to perform a personalized striptease based on your attractive matrix and mm-hmm. the songs that you like. For a Cut out the middleman. And if you enter using uh, the code INTRODUCING, <laughs> uh, you get your first month worth of stripping for free. We're actually going to quit this podcast right now and start working on stri- stripper. St- stripper. Uh, so if anyone knows any good iOS developers, send them our way. Uh, great. So Guns N' Roses started throwing parties in the alleyway behind their studio space, and it becomes an after-hours joint post-gigs. The, uh, the alley becomes an after-hours? The alleyway. Strippers, drugs, booze, musicians, all of it flows freely into the alleyway, and the band starts selling <laughs> cheap beer at a profit at these parties. More business acumen from them. Um, they're just really max. They're, so, they're a lean startup. So right now, Guns N' Roses is a loss leader for a beer and stripper delivery service. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> so you have to start somewhere, um, and you got to go with what what the people like and eventually they'll come around so yeah a matrix of strippers and drugs surrounds the band at all times also stds uh duff describes uh learning that uh 
Um, you can find antibiotics for syphilis uh, intended for use in aquariums at pet stores. Uh, tetracycline is not just good for tail rot and gill disease. It also does great with syphilis. And with no doctor visit, no expensive prescription, and no need to feign shame for the nuns at the free clinic, uh, who needs insurance when there's pet stores? I actually heard that anecdote about fish medication uh, yeah. recently mm-hmm. in the grim context of advice for a post-American Healthcare Act world. Oh, God. So Everything that, that is depressing. old is new again. Just... Just in time for Guns N' Roses to get back together, their fish antibiotics regimen can come back in vogue. And I would like to think that they could afford real doctors, but I mean, why? Why bought? Like, it's if you're also avoiding like the shame of telling someone else that you got the clap, like you might as well just buy the pet the pet antibiotics. Ugh. Uh, so thanks to their mailing list maintenance and writing jams like Welcome to the Jungle and Sweet Child of Mine, Guns Roses so actually start... So at this time, they're already like writing Welcome to the Jungle? Yeah. They're literally writing stuff from Appetite for Destruction uh, just casually. I mean, that is like, it is fun to clown on them for like mostly just getting fans by selling cheap, like bootleg cheap beer, but like... It's about the songs, baby. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you cannot deny uh, Welcome to the Jungle. No, absolutely not. Um, they start selling out shows, and the record companies start sniffing around. Uh, so, hey, you know that band with all the free beer? They've got these songs too that like really cook. <laughs> so Wait, you get- mean that stripper band? They can actually play. They're getting into the sort of machine now, the the real business machine, uh, and the press start covering them. Um, they're getting some attention. And so it's at this point that Duff shares a, an interesting anecdote about some drug experimentation. Uh, let's see. Uh, so this guy named Robert John had been haranguing us to approve some photos he had taken so that he could start to submit them to magazines as coverage began to spike. Slash and I finally agreed. One afternoon, the two of us went with Robert to some girl's apartment right on Hollywood Boulevard to look at his proofs. Robert explained we'd have to look at the contact sheets through a little magnifying glass shaped like a shot glass called a loop. <laughs> I really like that. When we arrived at the girl's apartment, we were relieved that she had air conditioning as it was in the high 90s that day and we'd walked there from the Gardner Alley. That's the that's the alleyway where all the yeah, party beer strippers. Alley. Beer Alley. Uh, Philippe, the bus driving drug dealer we knew from Gardner, came out of the back bedroom as we arrived. Uh, it was obvious that both he and the girl whose apartment this was were flying on crack. No big deal. We were used to this shit. Slash and I were not exactly looking forward to going through this st- stack of proofs for Robert. It wasn't a very rock and roll thing to do, but we grudgingly acknowledged <laughs> that it was part of the deal for a working band. Now that we saw that there were hundreds of individual shots that we had to approve or deny, right at that moment, Philippe offered me some crack. <laughs> uh, crack cocaine was one of those drugs. I don't like my, ex- I don't like my expression in this one. No, your hat looks weird in the next one. Slash, what do you think of this one? Oh, my hairs are wrong. I got, what do you think of this one? Oh, oh my face is in the wrong position. You wait and see. Uh, crack cocaine was one of those drugs I had always passed on when it was around. Between Seattle and then Hollywood, I saw a lot of people get addicted to this stuff, and crack addiction wasn't a pretty sight. But on this day, I decided to try it. I'm not sure why. I'd been drinking. Uh, maybe I needed something to get me over the edge so I could look at this heap of photos. My experiences with yeah, most definitely, drugs... Definitely the time to like try a new like extreme stimulant is when you have a big... Uh, detail-oriented task sitting right in front of you. I mean, if this were, like, 2012, it would be, like, Adderall, right? Mm -hmm. And you would be super stoked to do it for that. Uh, 
I needed something to get me over the edge so I could look at this heap of photos. My first experiences with most drugs were the result of something as dumb as that. In the sixth grade, I dropped acid for the first time because as an older kid, one I looked up to, offered it to me on the way home from school. I didn't want to embarrass myself, so yeah, I did You know, did one it. of those big, mature 13-year-olds comes up to you and says, Hey, take it from me. I've lived a lot of life experiences. <laughs> I'm in the eighth grade. Yeah. You see a lot of shit by the time you get to the eighth grade. Anyway, yeah. try this acid. Just, I just imagine little little baby, little baby twelve year old Duff just walking home, just absolutely like he's zoning out of his yeah, mind on just acid, seeing some weird stuff. The animal crackers are really <laughs> making animal sounds. Uh, the crackling sound from the torched rock in its receptacle and the sight of the glass tube filling up with smoke that smelled both sweet and acidic oh, was so mesmerizing. I inhaled. The high I experienced from that first hit of crack was one of the most euphoric 60 seconds I'd ever felt. My senses sharpened and I felt stronger than fucking Atlas. <laughs> I found myself horny. I was, <laughs> I was filled with a powerful feeling that I could accomplish just anything. just tears all the photo proofs to shred. Yeah. Yeah, screw these. I'm going to go and like lift a million weights. Um, the resultant crash was just as extreme. It seized my whole body in an acute and all-encompassing craving. Hey, Philippe, set me up again, okay? I feel like that's like a very, like he sounds very casual, but I'm sure he was really like, Philippe, <laughs> get some more crack. <laughs> he gave me a sizable rock and I dove headfirst into another hit. Ah, I thought, this shit is good. It sounds cliched, but it, it is funny to be like, reading through one paragraph where he's like, I was thinking, I don't know. I've seen a lot of people get addicted to crack mm -hmm. one hit later. Hey, you, want, you got any more of that crack? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, you see why. Uh, this is wonderful. Crack accentuated everything in a good way. The features of the girl's drab cookie cutter apartment suddenly became beautiful. The formica topped island that separated the kitchen from the living room suddenly took on architectural perfection. A use of space so logical and brilliant, its beauty blew me away. What a, <sighs> what a, hey, who does your fixtures? Do you have an interiors guy that I could get into? <laughs> what at first glance looked like an ugly orange shag carpet was now as magnificent as a priceless Persian masterpiece in the window of an hey, expensive babe. Beverly Hills rug shop. Hey, babe, you got any swatches around here? I've been thinking about redoing my interior. <laughs> I think he meant like swatches, like watches. Like he looked at a swatch and it's as nice as a Rolex. <laughs> uh, the traffic I could hear outside on Hollywood Boulevard transformed from a noisy nuisance to a source of enchantment. I wondered where these people might be headed. Maybe some of them were on crack too and as happy and elated as I was. I love that. He's just so like he's just so excited that like somewhere out there like, someone might be on crack as well. Entered like a weird Disney like hallucination where everybody turns into like beat bopping little and uh like anthropomorphic houses and they're all doing crack yeah crack together. everyone's so high um i started to come down again but had another rock at the ready no worries slash was doing the same thing as me and now we fought over the loop to start the process of approving individual shots among the reams of photo sheets we raced through the images somehow doing it in tandem so that neither of us would have to wait around with nothing to do god forbid but alas our rock started to dwindle and finally disappear philippe now wanted money if we chose to continue oh fuck i didn't have any money i bolted from the apartment the impossibly hot and singed my whole being as a ridiculous crash almost doubled me over with despair. All my muscles seemed to contract at once. I felt dark and used and stupid. The 10-block walk back to our gardener storage space was one of the hardest physical challenge I had ever endured. Sluggish, jonesing, lonely, depressed. Ugh. 
For some reason, I stopped at a payphone and did something really stupid. I called my mom. I tried to act cool and just see how she was doing, see what was going on with the family in Seattle. The truth was, I wanted to hear the voice that always made me feel better as a small boy when I was sick with the flu or when jocks beat me up for being a content warning, a punk rock faggot. I knew she was tell I knew she could tell something was wrong with me. The stench from the ghetto phone booth was making me dry heave and it was impossible to see out of it because of graffiti that blackened the glass. Claustrophobia washed over me. I couldn't breathe. I tried to keep my cool on the phone. No, mom, I'm okay. Just a little tired, I said. I might be coming down with something. Yeah, I was coming down from fucking crack. <laughs> so that's Duff's experience, I think first experience with crack. Uh, he said, eventually said, I would end up doing crack many more times, but I was never as ill-prepared as I was the first time <laughs> I did it with Philippe. I love that it's over going over those photo proofs. Yeah, you need the fuel, <laughs> right? Being like, oh, there are so many pictures. How are we ever going to look at all these pictures if only we had something to keep us focused? Right, right. Oh, God. Um, so that's kind of the status that they're at right now. They're, everyone's dabbling. Uh, the band eventually signs with Geffen. Um, so the, the deal gets inked. They believe that that's the label that won't mess with their sound or try to soften them. The other labels uh, said that they were going to. And they receive their advances. And they're like a huge act in L.A. at this point. At yeah, least in L.A. They at this are, point. They are definitely hometown heroes at this point. Just buy a bunch of beer, sell it under cost, mm-hmm. and get people to your shows. That's the thing is that in, in all this sort of like building mythology, there's actually not really any mythology. Duff is basically just like, we were a bunch of goobers who wrote some incredible jams, played a lot of shows, partied really hard, and maintained our mailing list, and that's how we became a big deal. Well, not to get like existential about it, but it's, it's funny thinking about like that kind of scene in the context of like the New York scene now where it mm-hmm. seems like every month a new DIY venue gets shut down mm-hmm. or, um, you know, gets raided for like, I don't know, doing something stupid. Like the bathroom is beer. under code. Yeah, the bathroom's under code or like maybe you're just selling beers out of a cooler instead of having a quote unquote liquor license, like yeah. some kind of big wig corporate venue. Yeah. But it is funny how. At first glance, it's like, ah, it's just a bunch of kids trying to get away with, like, not going through the main mechanisms Mm -hmm. of, like, starting a club. Mm -hmm. But it really does foster a music scene to be able to just, like, go into some cheap space and, like, put up, you know, a plywood stage Mm -hmm. and be like, here's cheap beer and a bunch of dudes who, and ladies, who like to party. Mm -hmm. And also they make music. And then you, like, go and hang out in, like, a music scene develops. It's like a social scene. God forbid. You gotta have a booze and stripper-filled alley. alley. Oh, we need to bring this back to Brooklyn. How? We need to meet more strippers. Yeah, I mean... It, it is, like, kind of ultimately corny or cheesy to be like, everything's so corporate these days, man. But, like, if you can't run venues, like, that are just, like, slightly under code, mm-hmm. it's really hard to have a really cool, fertile music scene. Unfortunately, there's also, I'm pretty sure, no record labels sniffing around, you know, uh, Shea Stadium. <laughs> like, there's the, the music industry itself is not in the same place that it was when people were just, like, literally sharks swimming around these, I mean, these scenes in L.A. trying to find the next great band. I mean, that's definitely true. Now that's but you gotta at least camp. start with a Shea Stadium. Yeah, true, of course. Um, they signed with Geffen. Uh, they received their advances. I think it's something like $75,000. Duff immediately spends uh, his on a bunch of instruments and three tattoos at once. Um, <laughs> but he actually shows his financial prowess early on because he doesn't spend it all at once. I think he gets a Corvette 
uh, and he had been haunting this music uh, music gear shop for like months and months and months. And he's like, yeah, I bet they thought that I wasn't going to buy anything. And I finally did. <laughs> so it was See, exciting. that's what you got to do. You can't just save it all. No, you got to you got to give yourself a zing. Mm-hmm. You give yourself a little zing and then put like put most it away, away for a rainy day. But you can't you can't just conserve it all or else you go crazy. Well, yeah, exactly. Buy uh, your three tattoos at once. Yeah. Buy your shiny new Fender P bass. Yeah. They spend, they play a celebratory show and he describes it as like everyone has fresh tattoos and so everyone's trying to like touch their their tattoos which I feel like is actually really painful like and they're like big tattoos I think uh, I just think it's funny that they. They might have gotten some more unofficial tattoos, but I like that they once they got the real money, it's like, okay, I'm going to go to an actual tattoo artist and like get this done for real. It's also funny imagining, like, there are five guys in the band right now, right? Yes. Uh, it's also funny imagining, like, five guys all playing in, like, cutoff shirts, like, trying to play with one side to the audience, being like, yeah. see my Check giant skull with a rose growing through it? Yeah, it's it's raw, but it looks great. <laughs> yeah, they're all, like, still red and tender. Yeah. Uh, like, don't... Don't touch! Don't touch it! it don't hurts. touch it! But it's it's like badass, right? Yeah, they're all like snakes and and patterns and stuff. Uh, he's twenty two now. Yeah, he's just and the a band baby. is like huge. The band, yeah, big. the band is getting huge. It's eighty six. Uh, the next year they will release Appetite for Destruction, whose songs they are currently recording. Uh, and then they actually sell out the Troubadour. They did what they said that they were going to do. Um, they are the the kings of L.A. and they're getting serious not attention. Not the L.A. kings. Not the L.A. kings. But the, the kings, kings of, of L.A. LA. Great. Uh, getting recognized around town. Geffen tells them to stop touring. Um, they're only allowed to open for larger bands such as Motley Crue, which is a band that Duff admits totally out party Guns N' Roses. And he makes we'll, this we'll point. Get, we'll get to the Motley Crue memoirs eventually. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, Duff makes this point several times in the book. He's intent on expressing that no matter how hard Guns N' Roses parties, the crew parties harder. Uh, at one point mid book, he describes a party that leaves him vomiting blood in its wake. So, but the weird thing is he doesn't put, he didn't, doesn't say any details about like what, what that means, do. what they do. All he says is just like, you gotta believe me. They party so hard. <laughs> He's like shell shocked being like the things I saw. Yeah. There's no coming back from. Right. The parties. The party's man. <laughs> yeah, from from what I've read, uh, I haven't even read. I believe Tommy Lee and Nikki Six have memoirs. Nikki Six definitely mm-hmm. has one. And we'll again, we'll get to those we'll eventually. get to that. But from what I hear, I feel like there's like a, a, a almost like a Zeno Zeno's paradox for uh, Motley Crue. Mm-hmm. It's like Crue's party paradox. It's like no matter how hard you party, you still have only gotten like halfway. Yes. To how hard Mo- Motley Crue parties, and then if you try to make up that ground, first you have to make it to like halfway. Further, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, it's like and it, no matter how much partying ground you've covered, you've only made it, ha- you've only covered half the ground. Well, it, to me, it sounds like from what little I remember of calculus is like limits, right? Yeah. And so, like, you get closer and closer and closer and closer, closer, but you never hit the limit, and the limit is Molly Crew's level of partying. Yeah. The the crew party paradox. Um, I would like to I would like to make a like an actual graph of that, um, with like their tiny faces on on it. Yes. Um, we'll do that. I'll do that later. <laughs> Uh, Appetite for Destruction comes out uh, 1987. It actually doesn't hit number one until almost a year after its initial release, which is slow burn. Pretty rare for an album to do. Says Duff, I never really celebrated Appetite reaching number one. Maybe I still haven't. 
<laughs> uh, interesting. And it, he does say that. He says, like, the band, they're so workmanlike, for partiers anyway, uh, that they, they really don't do things like celebrate their successes. They just kind of, like, keep chugging forever. And I think that eventually kind of messes with their band unity because they never take time to celebrate the, the special. Well, moments. you know, it's just like what we were just saying. When he, when he got the advance and he, mm-hmm. like, celebrated a little by buying a few things and then put the rest away, mm-hmm. is that you, like if you don't take a moment to like reflect on your goals and accomplishments mm-hmm. and like acknowledge them, then it's like they never happen. And you're always on this ramp mm-hmm. that eventually goes from like trying to hit a goal into just like nothingness or nihilism yeah. because you never, there's no ascent. You never get to the top. Yeah. You gotta is... let yourself enjoy a plateau every once in a while. Yeah. This, these are important life lessons um, that Duff is, is telling us about uh, implying anyway. The band is now famous, 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 famous. Everyone wants a piece of the Guns N' Roses boys. And as the case, uh, as is the case with any rock band ascendance, it's a lot to handle at once. Uh, Duffer counts the different band members. That you were just cracked out staring at uh, photo proofs. Right. Like, what, eight months before? Right. Wandering, da- wandering down to Booze Alley, calling your mom from a phone booth, being like, I'm just tired, mom. Tired from all the photos. Yeah, I'm tired of all the photos. <laughs> so, you know, selling a 50 cent can of beer for a dollar. Things of, you know, you, you don't have to be your own, your own machine anymore. You're part of a, a larger machine. Uh, Duffer counts that different band members start handling fame in different ways. Slash's drug of choice is heroin. Uh, Steven Adler's drug of choice, drugs of choice are heroin and crack. Uh, he finally gets the money to have that big ball of crack he always wanted. And we finally made it, man. We made it to that big ball of crack in the sky. <laughs> and Axl Rose's drug of choice is being extremely late for things. <laughs> so that's the funny I thing mean, is like... same. Yeah, well, sure. Uh, uh, Axl Rose... He doesn't ever really have... I don't even think he drinks that much, and he certainly doesn't have a drug problem, but he eventually... He's known for being sort of erratic and problematic, and it's I don't. It's just something internal. I mean, he says... he Obviously, this is not a memoir of Axl Rose, and we are dealing with the big D duff here, but uh, Axl Rose has some interesting like personal demons of his own. Uh, and we, we only really see those kind of from the duff angle, which is to say perplexed but uh, in denial... Well, Duff definitely comes off as a guy who is, like, a a fun-loving dude, but also, like, extremely personally responsible. Mm -hmm. Like, for whatever reason, he puts it in his head, like, we gotta get this band to fucking Seattle. Yep. And he makes it happen. How much, like, cheap trucker crank we have to buy Mm -hmm. along the way, and, like, makes it happen. My guess to do, like, a little armchair analysis of Mr. Rose is that it's a control thing. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, well, I'm sure we'll come to it, but, you know, that's what you know about Axl Rose is that... He's a control freak? Yeah, is that it's his band. Yeah. And he he's the cog that it's not going to work without. So, like, by showing up extremely late to things, it's like... It's a power, power It's a power play. move. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, and I also think that Duff is kind of, like, a would-be peacemaker, maybe because he's from such a large family. And the family's definitely, like, they grew up pretty frugally. Uh, they had this concept called FHB, which was stands for Family Hold Back, um, which is that, like, if they had, like, a co- if a couple kids had different friends over for dinner mm-hmm. and they realized that there wasn't enough food, they would say FHB, and then it would be, like, Family Hold Back, let the other kids, like... Oh, that's so sweet. It's so sweet, and uh, I really do think that that's kind of, like what happens to him in this band is that he 
he, he like becomes like pa- yeah he sort of like passively deals with this stuff as it starts happening fhb family hold back also sounds like it could be like teen twitter slang right now <laughs> yes fam, fam hold back <laughs> fam hold back uh, like uh, if you're gonna like get in like a fight or something or mm-hmm. you see something extremely objectable on twitter you might be like fhb fam hold back yeah hold back fam uh we don't need to drag this person anymore right so everyone starts getting deeper into their vices. Duff starts drinking more heavily, and he has a crucial realization one night. Uh, says Duff, one night I was so fucked up that someone pulled me aside and said, here, do a little coke, and you'll sober right up. And there you go. That was the secret potion. I had been looking at coke the wrong way. I never wanted to be that guy, the asshole coke guy. But now I realize coke wasn't an end in itself, or didn't have to be. It was a means to an end, a tool. I didn't have to become a coke guy to make use of it. Coke just allowed me to pursue my favorite mind-altering regimen, vodka, harder and for longer periods of time. That guy I could be. So from this now on, this is Duff's consumption persona, a lot of vodka, and then enough cocaine to be able to keep drinking more vodka. Uh, he eventually, I think at his peak, he starts drinking half a gallon of vodka a day. That's so much vodka. Yeah. You can drink vodka for like a long period of time, especially if it's like mixed in with sugary drinks. Well, which yeah. is what he's doing here. He's like replacing the Coca-Cola of a vodka mm-hmm. Coke with literal Literal Coke. Coke. Yes. Like, which, uh, you know, considering the genesis of Coca-Cola makes a lot of sense right. why vodka and mixed drinks. Yeah. Right. I mean, look. <laughs> He's on to something. Yes. It's not a good idea what he's on to. Eureka. But it's, he's on to something. Yeah. Um, Guns N' Roses are getting really huge. They play the Monsters of Rock Festival in England, and there's a crowd crush that occurs when they play Paradise City, and two fans die, uh, are, like, suffocated to death. So this is, this is the level that they're at right now. They are, like, fan dying at festivals because of Stampede's level famous. Uh, and then There they, are recordings from that show, right? There are recordings for that show. It's very unpleasant to yeah. listen to because you can hear the band pleading with the crowd from mm-hmm. the stage, like, yo, we're gonna play for a long time, don't worry about it. Like everybody yeah, take a everyone step back. chill. Yeah. But these things are, you know, once they get to a certain level, they're actually really hard to prevent. Yeah. <laughs> crowd like, you know, crowd dynamics. I mean, I've been in big, that... big crowds where I felt a little out of control in the crowd. It's not a pleasant feeling. Mm-hmm. Totally. So that's the level that they're at. Uh, the band gets an opening slot at four Rolling Stone shows, um, and much is made of the idea that Guns N' Roses are going to dethrone the Stones, um, which is just like a funny, it's just like a funny uh, status of what, what rock music is, that a band that has been playing for 25 20 years, years something like that. Um, can still, is still on the throne. Um, yeah. And I guess that's just, that's a testament to how big Guns N' Roses were, that people thought that they were like, going to be a Rolling Stones level. Well, that's interesting. I was thinking about this, about how, like, what the contours of the rock scene are, and, like, thinking about Mm -hmm. that this genre of rock is, like, Poison, uh, Motley Crue, Rat, Guns N' Roses, and, like, the Rolling Stones? Yeah. Like... Still kicking. Yeah. They got that... They had that disco stuff going on. They were... They were still trying hard. Um, But the, the point is that, like, they were still, like, the big... Big daddies and Guns N' Roses were still opening for Rolling Stones. Um, the tension of the, the dethronement uh, was somewhat diffused when uh, Mick backstage, seeing that Duff uh, is going to be wearing cowboy boots on a rain-dampened metal stage. Their whole stage setup was metal, I guess. He offered him a pair of sneakers because they realized they're both size 11s. Aww. Uh, says Mick to Duff, we must have the same size Willie. <laughs> 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 I love that. And I love that Duff included that because I, I, I if, if Mick uh, Jagger said suggested that we had the same size dick, I would definitely put it in my memo. Yeah. Uh, anytime that Mick Jagger talks about your penis, it has to go in your book. Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's that's just like a rule. Um, 
It's at one of these Stones gigs that Axel announces to the crowd that a certain band members don't stop dancing with Mr. Brownstone, a reference to the heroin use of members of the band, then Guns N' Roses is going to break up. Um, this airing of Dirty Laundry infuriates Duff. Uh, the stuff that Steven Adler is doing and that uh, Slash is doing, he considers it their business. He wants to deal with it on his own. The Again, idea that though, Axel is like wielding this sort of weird control and power of the crowd by mentioning this like really bums him out. Again, power move. Does he? Does Duff say anything? No. Uh, and the band soldiers on and completes the rest of the Appetite for Destruction tour. Insofar as I can imagine doing a world tour as a hard rock band, mm-hmm. I could imagine it doing it fueled by like booze and uppers. Yes. But imagine doing that like on like the severe chronic downer of heroin, a drug that you like take and zone out for hours at a time yeah. and then like get on stage and like do athletic guitar solos and for maybe... a- hours. Like it's, it's just so mind boggling that people, and obviously it's a common story of rock throughout mm-hmm. its time. But I just, I don't get it. Maybe heroin just uh, helps people noodle. It's it's less believable with Steven Adler because he has to literally keep the, the backbeat. Yeah. Um, but he's also doing crack, which could, like, help him, you know. the it, Clearly, the one narrative thread of this band is just the, the delicate balance between uppers and downers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So... They finish the Appetite for Destruction tour. At some point during the tour, uh, Duff takes a couple shows off and he goes and marries his girlfriend, Mandy. Who is Mandy? What are her hopes? What are her dreams? We don't really know. And it seems like neither does Duff. (laughs) (laughs) It's like he has a 300 page memoir and his first wife just gets a name drop and that's it. Yeah. She gets about like three total pages. Um, and that's Duff a real is still, uh, that's a drive-by marriage yes stuff is still acting like a bachelor um he slides fully into excess he buys a pot-bellied pig in addition to Wait, his can we hear more about this pig uh th- that's really all he really only mentions it in like one paragraph and then i don't know what happens to the pig what happens to the i pig? don't he does not describe the end of the pig only the beginning i don't want to know um, uh, it sounds like from the lack of details here, it sounds like he might be running on Cliff's Notes versions of his own life. Yeah, and what's funny, he opens the book and he's like, "These are just my memories. Like other people might have different memories." Oh wait, no, no, no. I it's actually, a real, it's a real Rashomon of his I'm, own I'm memoir. I'm sorry, I do need to read this. This is the author's note. Uh, my friend and old band, my friends and old band members may remember some of the stories I recount differently than I do, but I have found that all stories have many sides. Rashomon. These are my stories. These are my perspectives. This is my truth. So this is Duff's truth, which is that he bought a pot belly pig, and then I don't know if he knows what happened to it. Um, and he got he gets married to Mandy, but he's still like living like a bachelor. Um, he mentions throwing a lot of naked pool parties at his house in Laurel Canyon, uh, and he goes and I mean, hits the clubs in who, Hollywood at the time. Us. Who whomst among us wouldn't do that if we also had a house with a pool in Laurel Canyon? Yeah. Um, he listed I'm, this is just a side note, but he listed uh, a bunch of names of Hollywood clubs that were popular at this time okay, in the late '80s them. and early '90s: Bordello, Scream. Cat House, Vodka, Lingerie, and Spice. The final four sound like ingredients to the first one, Bordello. Yes, yes. Um, I, I, I would love to go to a club called Vodka. I would love to go to a club called Lingerie. It seems like uh, Duff goes to a club called Vodka every day, and it's called <laughs> Drinking Vodka. I'm going to a club called Vodka, <laughs> and the name of that club is my life. <laughs> That's Duff McKagan's The Piano Man. Yes. The, ba- <laughs> the Bass Man. Oh, The Bass Man. I mean, I would I would listen to that. Uh, the band starts recording for Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. 
uh, everything is a sloppy now, mess. Now, at the time that they start, do they realize that Use Your Illusion is going to be a one and two? No, I think they think it's going to be Use Your Illusion, and then it becomes one and two. And from other like they just rock had so memoirs, many illusions. you know now. So now we have like Drake's playlist, for example, <laughs> yes. or um, you know people calling mixed things mixtapes instead mm-hmm. of albums. But back then, the the big sort of structural formatting issue with albums was like the double album. Yes, because it was like we have so many songs and we want to release them all and the record label's like cool but we have to use two discs so we need to charge like twice as much even though like cost wise it only probably costs like three cents you literally have to um, take into account the amount of information you can put on a vinyl disc right so i don't know i just think it's just funny that like it it was like a sort of groundbreaking thing to do not not groundbreaking but it was a big deal to have like this double album and i think they eventually hit like numbers one and two on the charts um so it's obviously a big deal the recording of user illusion one and two was a sloppy mess steven adler gets fired uh they replace him with matt sorum formerly of the cult uh duff also just casually divorces mandy and we never hear from mandy again goodbye mandy uh the album i hope i hope that mandy had had an okay life i don't know where mandy is right now but i hope she listens to this podcast and i hope she doesn't get mad at us if you are mandy uh, get Call in touch. Us. We would love to do a supplemental episode of your memories of of the Duff McKagan years. Yes, we'll set up a Gmail so you can contact us or like a Signal account. Um, both al- both these albums have a shitload of songs and are taking forever to get mixed. So the band actually hits the road to tour on Use Your Illusion uh, before the album's even out, which is kind of weird. And this is when Axel starts acting really erratically, and he shows up one, two, three hours late for these shows on this tour. Um, Duff explains that there are often strict curfews at venues and if a band breaks the curfew they could end up paying tens of thousands of dollars in fines including overtime for union employees Um, they could get fined like literally thousands of dollars for every minute that they go over so this is a big deal Uh, and Duff thinks it's a horrible business to go on so late and he also feels terrible (laughs) for the fans who have to go home because they need to work early the next day or they have a babysitter that won't stay late he feels awful about this lateness I just love picturing like Duff in his like green accountant's visor also on like a speedball of coke coke and vodka just being like oh the babysitter fees and the union dues axel come on we need you to go on stage well that's what's going on in his head but he doesn't say anything uh oh he's such a sweet boy he is such a sweet boy he's he's passive but sweet um and the lateness on the user illusion tour causes the audience to regularly start turning on the band they throw rocks they throw bottles at the <laughs> Are stage they getting rocks into these venues i assume that like they're like semi-outdoor places oh, we're going down we're going down to the guns and roses show you got all the you guys got all the rocks that yeah. you want to take in <laughs> like just in case they're late like bring at least three or four rocks in your bag um they usually destroy... when i go to a show i bring a rock just in case the band's late yeah they destroy equipment uh they injure each other there's a full-on riot in st louis because of this and again later in montreal uh, Duff describes hearing fans turn on you as... It takes a lot to get Canadians to, uh, to riot. Yeah, well, these are French Canadians. Oh, so. yeah, they're a little on rear. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Duff describes hearing fans turn on you as, quote, a deep low sound that penetrates walls and vibrates the fundaments of buildings, causing panic and embarrassment. So, like, I think that there's maybe, like, 10 people on Earth who know what that sounds like. The sound of thousands and thousands and thousands of people going from being like guns and roses guns and roses to like bullshit but like he said bullshit is like a common chant all i can think about is being at a food co-op meeting Mm. when the crowd (laughs) turns against the speaker yeah uh when they're talking about i don't know israeli divestment from the food co-op and everybody there is like i have strong opinions about this that low rumble in the foundation of buildings uh does it seem like duff maybe has like a very low-key anxiety yeah oh mm, mm. 
he does. I would say it's high key anxiety. He had panic attacks when he was a kid, like when he was like an early teen, which never really got fully addressed. He said that he had stopped his childhood drug use because of those panic attacks. That's, and he still has panic attacks when he flies. So he's got, you know. Imagine uh, being like 14 year old Duff McKagan being like, I really got to quit all this LSD <laughs> use because this anxiety, I mean, I just feel like I need to recenter myself yeah. and just like think about what's best for Duff. Right. It's so funny. Anyway, I need to finish this algebra homework yeah. before I go off well, to farts practice. Well, he, d- he doesn't finish the algebra homework, um, although education is very important to Duff and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay, great. Uh, so... Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I'm picking up uh, the anxiety part of thing. Um, and instead of confronting Axel about this stuff, uh, he drowns himself in booze before, during, and after shows. His drink of choice is a large glass of vodka and a splash of cranberry. <laughs> and of course, he has to do cocaine in order to stay sober enough to play well. His rule is that his consumption can never affect his musical ability. So he basically Good says rule. like... Oh, and he and another rule is like he can't put someone else's life in danger or his own life in danger. Although <laughs> to me, doing enough cocaine to eventually melt your septum counts as uh, yeah as putting yourself in danger. But I think he means more like you know no jumping speedboats off of a flaming ramp kind of thing. Um, <laughs> you might wonder how I got into this situation. <laughs> uh, look, I play bass. I can say pretty safely that you can consume a large amount of vodka and play bass fairly competently. Well. Yes. Uh, We'll see about that. Anyway, uh, this tour continues. Izzy Stradlin eventually gets sober and then he quits the band because he can't be around all of these uh, people. So uh, when they're all drunk and high, uh, Guns N' Roses members are dropping like flies. Uh, Do we want to watch? Can we watch a quick clip from this era? Yes. So this is a clip that I found uh, on YouTube. This is a drum solo by Matt Sorum uh, and uh, joined by Duff McKagan. Uh, this is in Tokyo, 1992. He's like, I can do these Tom fills all night. Oh. <laughs> and as if out of a trap door, uh, Duff McKagan appears oh behind him <laughs> to do an elaborate timpani solo. He's so hot. Look at him. Leather vest beautiful hair yeah i also have trouble imagining how you could drink that much and maintain that slim but i guess that's the cocaine yeah so anyway he just hammers away on that timpani real hard bringing out his real multi-instrumentalism to do a drum duet unbelievable uh he looks incredible he's he does look great and he looks like he's having a great time it would be hard to watch that guy on stage and be like oh there is like because this is 92 we're we're Mm -hmm. into use your illusion era it'd be hard to uh picture that that guy or like look at these guys and be like oh their lives are falling apart right they they're definitely still enjoying themselves at the show itself so to describe this tour uh uh the bloated nature thereof duff writes about it he says the tour staff sometimes approached 100 people not only were we carrying backup girl singers a horn section and an extra keyboard player but also chiropractors masseuses a singing coach and a tattoo artist um, you gotta get you gotta get that tattoo artist on retainer. Imagine I I just want to I mean I want to know more about like how many tattoos did this person give? Like was, were they mostly off days? Was he tattooing every day? Does he Up tattoo to the show? Does he tattoo other people and like the crew and the staff, or is he is it only for the the band members? I have so many questions. He doesn't describe this stuff. Come on, uh, each of us had body. I also like 
you know, a horn section for all those famous catchy Guns N' Roses horn parts that we know. Yeah, right. I don't really know which songs that they were playing on, uh, but it just sounded like Excess was the name of the game at this point. Um, it's like, sure, bring a horn section. We might not, not even use them, we but we got it. But we should have them. Well, you should just to have it. You don't want to. You don't want to fly off to Japan for on your world tour and not have a horn section. Yeah, with just you. find yourself in need of a, a trumpet and a trombone, and you don't have it. You just gotta have it. Yeah. Just have it. Just have it. Um, each of us had bodyguards and drivers. Side note, Duff's bodyguard is named Truck. <laughs> Which, honestly, I wouldn't want to hire a bodyguard if his name wasn't Truck. Get get on the Duff truck. The Duff truck. Uh, money, and this was the band money, not individual money, poured uh, into nightly after show theme parties. There were gambling nights and toga parties. In Indianapolis, the theme was car racing. The the party staff was part of the paid entourage, too. The parties would go into the early morning hours. The guys in the band actually didn't go to many of the parties, and neither did much of the crew, but the money was spent whether any of us, whether or not any of us showed up. So I want to know, there's probably at least like a couple thousand people in the United States who have been to Guns N' Roses after parties that the, the band might have not even attended, but like they knew what it was like, and I want to talk to them. Uh, yeah, I, it's also, it would be so funny to be like, in Indianapolis or whatever mm-hmm. and like Guns N' Roses is playing and you're like buddy who knows somebody who's like a concert promoter is mm-hmm. like holy shit Mike we got tick- we got an end to the Guns N' Roses after party yeah. and you show up there and it's just like a whole room of anonymous townies like yeah. you partying and, and a like, couple of like random liter- like literally roadies. nobody from the tour is even there it's like you run into somebody like are, are you on the tour you've got a badge he's like yeah I'm uh I'm the trumpet guy yeah <laughs> like, well I didn't hear any trumpet in the show oh yeah there's no trumpet in the show but <laughs> I'm here I'm here we're going to Tokyo uh yes so that the the tour is definitely uh, it's a money suck. He he says you know these days tours are meant to be money makers and they're run kind of on a very tight budget. Back in the that day, it was just promotion. It was marketing. <laughs> That's so, crazy. That's like twenty twenty five years now. I guess that that has flipped. The record industry has flipped so much mm-hmm. that it's like the tour is the ad for the album, and now the album. Yeah. Isn't even an album. It's a mixtape to it's go see tape. Drake live in Montreal. Yeah, where he certainly won't be starting a ride. Like Chance the Rapper has not signed to a label, and he makes almost all of his money from touring and merch, which is kind of unbelievable. It's crazy. It's one generation. The, yeah, the idea that Chance the Rapper would um, bring a tattoo artist or a masseuse on tour. <laughs> Maybe he does, and he can, you know he can do whatever he wants. Um, that's fine. He so brings Duff's, that adorable baby of his on tour. Yeah. <laughs> so cute. Um, Duff's addiction gets worse. He marries... A Duff's pe- addiction was the uh, the failed previous band to Jane's Addiction. Jane's Addiction. addiction. Um, like, Maybe we should make this more like female focused. To bring yeah. In, like a you know, female a, energy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll insert here that Duff actually... Um, I don't know if... is I don't know if this is a well-known thing, but Duff was known as the king of beers. Uh, back in like his early days and he was eventually approached by makers of a, an upcoming cartoon on Fox and they wanted a brand name for the beer that they were going to use which is why in The Simpsons the beer is called Duff Beer. I just read something a counter to that. Really? Yes. That uh, the the creators of The Simpsons mm-hmm. uh, deny that they named it after Duff McKagan although that Get he was out. known as the King, the King of, of Beers. beers. Yeah. Um, that it was named for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, Matt Greening, he just had in his head uh, this catchphrase, can't get enough of that wonderful Duff. And okay. it, like, and it also is, you know, goes along with like uh, Bud, you know, a one sil- monosyllabic thing. And that, uh, that most tavern is a very close recreation of uh, mm-hmm. near the University of Oregon when Groening was there called Duffy's. Okay. And so in the book, 
where you're drawing this from, McKagan just claims that Duff is named after him. Mm-hmm. Matt Groening has called this uh, claim absurd. And later, I believe Duff McKagan just said that he said, well, I just assumed that oh, it was really? named after me. That's so funny. In response, McKagan has stated, this is from the Wikipedia page, but it is cited off of, where are we? There's a citation to it. Uh, trust me. Uh, Duff, or in response, McKagan has stated that he thought it was common knowledge and uncontroversial that he was the origin of the name. Uh, and jokingly called the assertion that his assertion was absurd, absurd. <laughs> There's double, <laughs> double, double absurd. absurdity. Uh, great. That's, I had no idea. That's so funny. Duff's addiction gets worse. He marries a penthouse pet named Linda Johnson, a woman he does not describe at all besides referring to her as a drug buddy. A drug buddy. So, and I he's mean, like, sure. he's like, marrying a drug buddy is a really terrible idea. Don't do it. Take, take, you know, it's like the path of least resistance to marriage. Yeah, right. Like, he, he says he doesn't even remember the ceremony. So, like, things are getting pretty bad. These first two marriages sound like real low real, points. Bl- real blips, yeah. honestly. Um, Duff's family tries to stage an intervention. Uh, Duff rejects it. I mean, it, not to harp on this, but you know you're in a low place when two marriages go by in in your 300 page yes. memoir you're like mm, i guess they have yeah it's like maybe like three paragraphs between between the two of them uh he rejects his intervention he's using so much coke at this point that he has to start snorting heroin to come down and obviously he used to be super against heroin he's a live and let live guy like he's not gonna like yell at slash or steven adler just because they're doing heroin but uh seeing how it ravaged his former seattle music scene he's not a big fan of heroin but he's still just doing it anyway because a, a bro's got to sleep at some point yeah it's it's like pure maintenance yes exactly sounds awful um and the addiction actually uh starts affecting his playing i know that you said that uh as a bass player it's it's hard to not do it like basically well but this is then this is the level that duff has gotten to uh i said that you can drink a fair amount of vodka and still play bass okay sure i uh, don't think that i think that once you're in the uh in the realm of a delicate balance of cocaine and heroin <laughs> to maintain your vodka intake then i can imagine yes. your bass playing suffering yes um at the show i was too fucked up and i knew it this is a show in mexico city uh i was too fucked up and i knew it i could hear myself babbling incoherently backstage the guttural sounds spilling from my mouth between gulps of vodka and cranberry we got guttural. what did i what was i looking for blubbering blubbering close to blubbering uh barely resembling words then we took the stage i finally stumbled across the line i had always held sacred i found myself falling behind stay in the pocket Stay in the pocket. pocket. Just play. God, my bass player heart is breaking. Stay in the pocket, man. He said, just play. You can always play. Always. Just stay with Matt. I tried to hold it together. I stared at Soren, banging the drums, and tried to stay with him, concentrating. He exaggerated his strokes to help me. He nodded. His shoulders rose with the beat. Come on, man. This is heartbreaking. Still not getting the fingers on my left hand to the right spot in time. Still not moving the pick fast enough. Pick it up. Pick me up. We had hidden rooms below the stage, so I staggered into one at the first chance to get more coke to sober up. Not happening. I could barely bend over to snort without tipping over. I righted myself. No time. Back out on stage. He disappears mid-song to a hidden room under to the stage. A hidden coke to room. try to do cocaine, and he can't even, like, position himself. Oh, God. This is dark. Uh, back on stage, struggling to stay in sync with Sorum. Pick it up. Can't quite. Come on, you Fuck. Fuck. This is all just like line breaks. Like he's got a very like poetic style at the moments. That I'm glad darkest. that he discovered his own literary style. 
Oh yeah, no, he's actually he's a I don't there's not a ghostwriter mentioned. There are editors, but I think he wrote this all himself and I I'm very impressed. I mean, I think one of the things that we discover through this is that Duff is a through and through renaissance man. He's got a lot of talents. I mean, we just listened to him play timpani fairly fairly uh, competently. Yeah, right. Um yes. So things are getting really bad. At some point of the European leg of the Use Your Illusion tour, Axel's lawyer sits a fucked up slash and duff down and tells them to sign paperwork that transfers the ownership of the Guns N' Roses name to Axel. They do it uh, because oh. they are really, well, I mean, Duff describes it as like, they're really messed up. Um, they're exhausted. They're kind of sick of Axel's shit. Uh, and like, they just figure like maybe like, I guess they just aren't, they're not really thinking it through. We, we, we kind of get mentions of Axel. Do we, is there like a picture of a- Axel? There's really, honestly, and also Slash? there's very little, it's like very Duff focused. And like after, and I guess this is just like how Duff feels about how the band has become since they got famous is like the, all the, the sort of brotherhood and camaraderie that they had when they were trying to get famous. Once they had the money and the ease and the comfort and were able to sort of retract into their own separate lives, like they just didn't seem to have that much of a relationship when they weren't playing together. I feel like that's a story that we're going to see over and over again Mm -hmm. is the idea of like a band becoming successful and then moving from like a collection of individuals to like a corporation that all these guys like work at. Yeah, right. And that's what it it seems like. But I I had always thought that the story of Guns N' Roses was the story about the growth of animosity between Slash and Axel. But yeah. it, it seems like that story is not super present here. It's not super present here. I don't know if Duff is just like kind of like not none of my business. So like that I'm not going to like describe it if I don't like fully know the story. Duff almost comes off as like like a kid who's just trying to like yeah. make the grade. And yeah. I don't know, maybe like Axel and Slash are more like mom and dad are fighting. Yeah. You know, and, and he uh, just wants them to like, they just need to sort things out for themselves. And as long as I like can can just play that bass real good. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be fine. And like my end is like held up Mm -hmm. and the band will be okay. I think he, he doesn't have any like delusions of grandeur about him being, he never says like, I'm amazing at bass or like I can rock super hard. All he says he wants to do is like, just try to rock. And so I feel like that, you know, that being his persona versus like Axel and Slash being more sort of known as the like geniuses Mm -hmm. uh, of the band. And like Duff is not wanting to position himself as such. And it's really more just about his own like personal demons of like not really being able to handle conflict well and numbing himself with alcohol and all that stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so they sign this thing that gives ownership of Guns N' Roses name to Axel. And then he's like pissed about it, and they try to like talk to him about it and just like not really happening. Uh, and but Duff he is, does trick them. He, he, tri- yeah, it's not totally above board by any means. Uh, they, I mean, he told them what they were signing and they knew that what they were signing was going to be a thing. But I, Duff is definitely one theme of this is just like not really trusting like businessmen and lawyers, which we'll get to eventually of like how he sort of like managed to circumvent that. Uh, anyway, Duff, uh, after the tour, the Guns N' Roses tour is on a break. He embarks on a separate tour for a solo album he recorded and. Uh, and it goes really poorly. I could imagine. He describes this. The tour started with three showcase appearances in clubs in LA, San Francisco, and New York, and it started badly. I'd switched from vodka to wine, but immediately found myself <laughs> drinking about a case a day. Wine, 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 and blood. Blood in San Francisco when my wife Linda got into a scrap backstage and traded punches with another woman until teeth started rattling to the floor. Blood in New York as fistfights broke out in the audience. Then we flew to Europe to join the Scorpions tour. A fistfight broke out between a couple band members in an airport. Blood. Our 
lead guitar player pulled a knife on the bus driver in England. Talk of more blood. Blood, 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 and wine. I often had to travel alone to get to the next town early to do publicity. I showed up at a record signing in Sweden, swilling wine from the bottle. Got skewered in the local press for that. A lot of young kids in line for autographs. So Duff is like, I mean... Well, it's, it's at this point that the uh, story becomes like a Game of Thrones narrative. Blood yeah, and wine. Just blood, 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 wine, 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 blood, blood. Uh, it just sat like he's in an extremely dark place and it's a bummer because like he's on this solo tour and he he said he was inspired by Prince and he recorded like all the uh, instruments himself like I've never did you listen to his solo album let's listen to some solo Duff yeah here is uh, Duff McKagan featuring Lenny Kravitz oh yes they're like old friends anyway go on you call me the mean man you point your finger at me Having problems with authority And every major city And it's so easy for you i just like to note that I listened to like two or three songs off of this and almost every one of them featured some form of saying it's so easy, it's not easy, it it was easy. Is it easy? I don't I don't know when, when it's easy. It was, I think, somewhere between Appetite and Use Your Illusion that uh, Guns N' Roses got a studio in Chicago to chill. And then later Duff says, like, oh, yeah, like I had Lenny Kravitz's demo when I was in Chicago. Like, Duff knows how to pick them. I think yeah. that's, and that's, like, maybe, like, a rhythm musician's, like, biggest skill sometimes is just, like, it's not you, you know, there's only so much stuff that you can do on base, but like if you find the good people, you'll yeah. end up doing well. Well, yeah, this, this Duff album, Jeff Beck's on this album, Slash is on this album. Mm. He's got like people on it. Uh, it sounds, from what I listen to, mostly like uh, 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 discarded Guns N' Roses tra- tracks, yes. but it's like right there. And apparently it did pretty okay. It Look, for the solo album of the bassist of a big band it hit 137 number 137 on the billboard 200 and sold about 100,000 copies worldwide not it's not, not a bomb it's not a bomb but also like when you compare it to what guns and roses yes, was doing sure. like i feel like it wasn't wasn't amazing but i feel like duff was too drunk to care it, the cover of it is also literally a, a skeleton swilling booze on inside a martini glass so that's a on self-portrait fire. yeah yeah it's I, it's it it's like that intersection of badass like quote unquote badass rock symbolism yeah but clearly the artist screaming for help it yeah it's, it also sounds like the visuals of oh the Guns N' Roses song that we so saw good. at Coachella uh great so on the way from home from his solo tour Duff sees Kurt Cobain at LAX and this is about a week before Kurt killed himself uh, Duff says that he wishes he could have asked him to hang out because um, he was clearly seeing that he was, you know, struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if he, he could have just said, like, come back to my house and chill. Like, we can kind of, like, work things out. Um, but he was too wrapped up in his own addiction. And so we did it. And then R.E.P. Oh, Kurt. that's a sweet, a sweet thought. Too. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer, um, especially since, like, I feel like a lot of people think that Nirvana was, like, the death knell for Guns N' Roses in a way. Yeah. Had they had they met or hung out before? I don't think I they'd maybe he, I think he said that they'd like been like been in the same circles, but I don't think they had spent like significant time together. So this that happens. Uh he's this is definitely rock bottom for him. I'm just gonna show you a picture of what Duff looks like mm. when he's, you know, right before the fall. Um he looks awful. He's, he looks like a Bob Odenkirk character. He's he really does. He's bloated, he's got a double chin. His hair is like totally fried. He's got an empty martini glass in front of him. He just lo- he looks like shit. Uh, and that's from what, like 93 or 94? Yeah. 
Um, Which is crazy because we were just watching a video of him in Japan in 92. And he looked fine. Yeah, he looked great. It's amazing how quickly his body deteriorated. So his pancreas exploded. That's where the story started. And that's where you get. Uh, at first, doctors tell Duff he'll Wait, have to be on dialysis this? for the rest of his life. This is 94. This is like uh, May of 94. So, so it's also right after Kurt Cobain kills himself. It's a, so he's 30. Yes. he's th- Yeah, he's 30 years old. And he says, he's like... Okay, I made it to 30. I didn't think I was going to live forever. Like, I was in Guns N' Roses. That was amazing. <laughs> Good Let, run. Please kill me. Let me die. Uh, they The prognosis is really bad. Uh, then he gets better. He goes into surgery. comes out. Uh, he's going to live. He doesn't need to be on dialysis for the rest of his life. Um, but the doctors tell him that he, if, if he has another drink again, he'll die. Uh, the doctors tell him to go to rehab. <laughs> I, I like to think that that isn't just like, you have an addiction. You need to stop drinking. Yeah. But it's like... According to the chemical analysis yeah. that we did of you, one one more drop of booze will explode your. You know, body. it's like red red and blue makes purple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, red and white makes pink. Alcohol in your tummy equals yeah. death. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, do, he was told to go to rehab, but he actually says that two weeks in the hospital, feeling so bad because his mom, uh, who's been suffering from Parkinson's disease, oh, has been there in her wheelchair watching him. And like he feels extremely guilty. He says that's been he enough. He must have been in Seattle for this. Yes, he was in Seattle. Too. Yeah, okay. he, he ended up in Seattle. Um, that's been enough of a mental shift for him. And he, he says he doesn't need rehab. Let me just white knuckle it. Uh, so he does just by literally almost dying and sending his uh, abdomen on fire. He doesn't go to rehab. He goes back to L.A. to recover. And he's so shaky at first, um, literally physically shaky, that he's afraid he's going to crash a car if he drives it. So he starts riding a mountain bike around the city instead. And that's, <laughs> that's actually that's what. Oh, does. man, I'm too physically unable to drive a car. So I guess I'll just drive, <laughs> ride a bike. They must have, I mean, if you think about like turning a wheel, I think it's way easier to crash a car than a bike. I'm like. Uh, uh, sweating pure liquor through the DTs. You know what I need? Some like intense mountain biking. That is literally exactly what he says he needs. He says it changes his whole life. If he hadn't been so shaky, he would have never mountain biked and then he would have never realized that like physical exertion is actually the key to his recovery. Um, he starts biking longer and longer distances around town. Uh, he randomly... <laughs> when you also in- imagine just like driving through LA at this time and like some kid in, in a... Well, not kid. Some yeah. guy in a mountain bike dr- bikes past you and you're like, is that... Is that is that the bassist from Guns N' Roses? No, like and then if this also, happened now, who bikes in LA? Yeah, well, Doc McKagan bikes. Also, now, like in the age of like Instagram and Periscope, like you know that he wouldn't have been able to get away with this. That would have been like the weekend biking around in LA, <laughs> like after he like ODs yes, that on would cocaine. Be, that would be like a whole Twitter story. The yeah. weekend seen biking in LA. Oh yeah, every frame of that would be captured. Um, these are good old days before that was happening. Uh, so he starts biking around town. He signs up for a mountain bike race in Big Bear, California, uh, and starts like training for it um, because that's what is sort of distracting him from addiction at this point. Uh, he's like not playing in the band at the moment. They're kind of on a hiatus. Uh, he goes to this race and he's dressed in chucks and like denim cutoffs and everyone else is like got their really light frame bikes and their spandex. He comes in 59th out of 350 riders. Not bad. Pretty good duff. Pretty freaking good. <laughs> and again, in like the winner's circle, all these like <laughs> spandex bike guys and this dude in chucks and cutoffs and all, the, all of them being like, is that... Is that, is that the bassist from Guns N' Roses? No. Well, yeah. And he still, like, he says he's, like, he still looks like shit. He, I think he gets rid of, like, 50 pounds of booze weight uh, in, like, three or four months. Because he's just, like, it Hell seems yeah. like he's just lugging around, like, a spare tire made of vodka that he eventually sweats out. At this race, he meets this guy uh, whose name is Dave Cully Cullinan. 
uh, Cully is like a world-class professional mountain biker who won the world championships of like downhill mountain can I, biking in Can I make a guess here? What? Is this mountain bike circuit how he's going to get his in to like the Seattle tech scene? N- not exactly. I think he just, he describes that as like. Because that seems like, if I was writing this as a movie, that's mm-hmm. where that's where that intersection would happen. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's he's described it as just like a city thing. Like if you're in Seattle and you have money to invest, like, you know, it's the, the Lyft or Uber of that. You know what I mean? Sure. Like it's just like an early version of that. Like every, like if it's Starbucks, you, you see that everyone is going to Starbucks and they just open like two places outside of Seattle and you're like, oh okay, yeah, I'm going to invest in Starbucks. Sure. I wonder how much money he has made from those investments. I'm guessing it's a lot. Um, Anyway, he meets this guy, Cully, uh, and becomes friends with him. So Cully is a championship mountain biker uh, who has a tear in his heart, like his aorta or something. And so he's actually not able to compete on the professional cycle. And he's waiting to get a heart transplant or like a partial heart transplant. It sounds freaking crazy. So he can get on the professional level again. Does Duff give him his heart? He does not give him his heart. He does hang out with he him. Would, though. And they have a good time. Uh, Duff describes just sort of the gulf between his old life and his new healthy non-drinking life by uh, <laughs> describing hanging out with Cully and his friends. So he says, one Sunday morning, I went out to the house of one of Cully's friends to watch some football with a crew of professional mountain bikers. There were some empty beer bottles around. One of the bikers said, oh man, I'm so hungover. What did you guys do last night? I asked. We partied like rock stars. Huh? <laughs> huh? I said, what does that mean to you? I drank a six pack by myself, said the hungover guy. I chuckled. Cully nodded in my direction and said, oh, don't fuck with this guy. Cully knew. I had talked with him a lot since we became friends. Now I told the rest of them. I told him how much I drank. I told him about the blow, the rocks of coke I'd shove up my nose, about having no septum, about throwing up and drinking the throw up because there was alcohol in it and their faces dropped. Yeah, said the guy. We partied like mountain bikers. <laughs> uh, I also imagine like someone from his old life running into him now and being like, Duff, I haven't seen you in eight months. Last time I saw you, you were drinking a case of wine a day Mm -hmm. and him being like, oh, yeah, I'm a competitive mountain biker now. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly the transformation. I mean, I think and I think that that's one of the cool things that you see is that this guy clearly is a guy who like gets a goal. Yes. And and when his goal is like, okay, I'm sober now. It's Mm -hmm. just like within like a few months yeah. he's living this crunchy mountain bike life. Yeah, it's all or nothing for Duff. Uh, bike life. What did you say bike life? Bike life. Bike life. Hashtag bike life. Uh he also starts once once the mountain biking is not, you know, enough for him, he starts going to a dojo and he's training with sure. this guy. Yes, of course. Benny the Jet Urquidez. Yes. Who is Keep a going. legendary kickboxer. He's been in like Kung Fu movies. Uh, and like everyone, you know, Sensei Benny is a, like everyone knows who he is and he runs this dojo and everyone, uh, you know, bows down to him. Uh, and the kickboxing is basically a way for Duff to sort of like think about the problems that he tried to drink away. Um, and it's just very, it's, he's just punching and thinking about the mistakes that he's made. Yeah. Yeah. Running up the belt levels. It's like a real montage moment. Mm -hmm. It's losing weight again. Ah, I can, I see it all. Yeah, exactly. And it's so funny. Like this is the part it's still interesting to me, but like this part of the book is kind of like, you know, the redemption part of a, of an addiction memoir. It's like, yeah, I get it. But like, I don't know the stories about the drinking, the, the alcohol because there's throw or the drinking throw up because there's alcohol in it. Is this kind of like, um, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the, the happy families are all the same, but on happy families, like Mm -hmm. you're each person's descent into, into addiction madness is different like is different and unique in the same but then the ascent is like yeah i mean 
I eat you healthy. Started, you guys started mountain biking and kickboxing. Going, We've heard out. it all before. Yeah. But the difference is that there's clearly something about Duff that's just very likable because he's making all these friends. Like yeah. these, I mean, I don't know if you would say that Sensei Benny is like a friend, but like he's clearly like a chill dude that people want to spend time with. Yeah. Which I I like. Like <laughs> just seems, a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, and he also he, seems to not be the case about Axel. No, I don't think Axel is going to have a. I don't, I don't think, think there's he's many going people any who has described Axel as a chill dude. You like to spend time. Definitely with. not. Uh, and Duff also he feels like his mind has been sort of wasting away after all those years of vodka and cocaine. Um, he he has a thirsty mind, so he starts reading history books and watching like Ken Burns documentaries and reading everything that Ernest Hemingway ever wrote. Good like life. he's getting back into his like brain. Do you brain. see Hemingwayish influences in this memoir? I don't really. He uses way too many adverbs and like synonyms for things. It's true. I was thinking like those. Uh, he does have the a penchant for those like short punctuated sentences yes um he does which is like very you know very bass player very very percussive yeah. uh <laughs> it, as in another like to part ask him, how has your bass playing influenced your literary style i would like to ask him that too i wonder if he would have a good answer for that i'm sure he would uh another part of his sort of recovery is that he's haunted by the idea that uh guns and roses has been getting ripped off by their music label uh he's pulling up all these papers uh with you know deals and whatnot and he's saying like is any of this actually making sense are we making the money that we deserve to make so he starts getting into the idea of studying business and economics so he can understand the music business and he takes a couple of community college classes and he eventually gets into seattle university's business school um for like a four-year program which is kind of a big deal because he was a high school dropout that is pretty that's pretty great yeah uh, and it's this point that he starts investing money into like Starbucks and Amazon. And he also meets uh, around the same time. He meets a model named Susan. What happened Wh- to his, his second wife? He divorced the he, punch wife. He divorced Linda, uh, Linda, the penthouse pet um, shortly after getting sober because apparently she was like not psyched about it, <laughs> like, which is the ultimate just like, oh, you, so you want me to keep drinking and keep having my internal organs explode? Like that's the lifestyle you would prefer. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're, you're, you're not fun I, anymore. I knocked a girl's teeth out behind stage for you. <laughs> And you won't keep drinking anymore yeah. for me? What the hell? I thought I thought relationships were about sacrifices. Get, I thought they were about give and take. Uh, how super I, rude. I gave you my fisticuffs and you won't give me your descent into dr- alcohol poisoning. I liked you better when you were wasted all the time. Uh, so yeah, no, he had gotten divorced a while ago. So he meets Susan. He immediately falls in love with her. Um, she's like a model, but like kind of like getting over her modeling days. Uh, and a couple months after they meet, she gets pregnant, and Duff is stoked. <laughs> he's, a, it's he's like, like the like, one rock star in the world who's like, yes, yes. accidental children. Yeah, he's going to be a dad. Uh, he wants to be a dad. He finally kind of sees like this is what life is all about. Um, which is, kind of, I mean, it's amazing that he made it to like 31 years old without any accidental kids with groupies. Um, so something was happening. Is there, there a lot of sex in the first part? There's not a lot of, they don't mention a lot of sex. They don't even mention sex with like the strippers and like the kind of girls hanging. Yeah, clearly it was a very was, stripper forward business well, at the beginning. There was clearly enough sex that he needed to take, uh, take aquarium antibiotics, right? Yes, that's true. But, um, but again, that could just be once. Yeah. But it's not a huge factor. And he never mentions, like, cheating on the first two wives, mm-hmm. uh, which I, mean, I don't he know if he says, does or not. Because, you know, f- monogamy is clearly important to him in the sense that, like, his parents breaking up was really unfortunate. And he's, a, he's a man of dedication. Yes. Uh, it's just, like, all in that, like, amorphous idea of, quote, unquote, partying. Yes. I'm uh, sure I'm sure that that's how he would answer it. It was being like, so what was your sex life then? He was like, I mean, man, we <laughs> 
party. Yeah, right. It was just all part of the package. Yeah. Um, Susan's pregnant. He's excited. Uh, and then at this point, he gets with a group of musicians. There's a couple of former, like, guns-adjacent people and some new people, and he forms this super group called Neurotic Outsiders. I just don't think he Not has a good name. excellent taste in uh, band names. He's still a member of Guns N' Roses at this point, um, but Axel is recording under the Guns N' Roses name because he has the legal rights to the name. So he's starting to put together his own... Like, he basically seems to have control over what the lineup is, but Duff hasn't been kicked out or hasn't quit. Um, but right before his daughter is born, but he officially far- quits the band. Oh, he officially quits. Yes. But up until that time, were there other bassists... Doing I don't think so. I, it's kind of confusing because, like, he's clearly when he's getting sober, like, he's not really playing with Guns N' Roses. He says, like, they keep having conversations about, like, how to get things started again. But I don't think they definitely don't record anything together. So I don't know if it's just Axel, like, yeah, and this trying is, to this squeeze is like up to the in. late 90s, early. Yes, this is like the, right? the, mid, the mid to late 90s. Um, but I think in 96, he officially quits or 97. Uh, and then he starts a band called Loaded, uh, which I believe he's the front man of. And this is in 1999, right before Loaded's album is supposed to drop. Uh, he he describes seeing um, uh, like Tower Records has picked it as like an album to watch. Like everyone's yeah, excited. Yeah. The la- like he's still at Geffen. The label's behind it. And then there are massive layoffs at Geffen, and Gu- Duff is unceremoniously dropped. Um, I just think this is funny because I feel like 1999 is like the last time that maybe one of the last couple of years that, you know, you could have a record at Tower Records that people are like getting excited about. Yeah. And it's also insane to think about like in 1992, Guns N' Roses is like one of the biggest bands in the world. And, um, you know, seven years later, nothing could seem more irrelevant to like the music scene of 1999 than like the Guns N' Roses members super group. Yes. That, that isn't Guns N' Roses. Yes. Or even like another Guns N' Roses album in 1999. Right. I mean, obviously that's because, you know, in retrospect, Guns N' Roses didn't put out an album in 1999. Mm-hmm. Right. But it seems like, I mean, what's big in 1999? Like Linkin Park? Mm, Britney mm. Spears' first album. Yeah. <laughs> whatever whatever Duff McKagan is doing musically could not be further off the chart. Yes, exactly. Um, Through no fault of Duff's. So they he gets dropped. The, the album never gets released. He does go on a sort of scrappy tour with Loaded uh, because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, man. Um, but then he meets up with Slash and Matt Sorum after they play a benefit concert together um, for one of their friends who's sick. And they decide that they still have music left in them. And it's around this time. So they Squeeze get together. Like they start. a tube of toothpaste. Yeah. They start writing songs together. They don't have a front man. Um, but they're like, they still got the juice. And then around this time that Scott Weiland quits Stone Temple Pilots. And they're like, great. Like, you are our new front man. Congratulations. Welcome to the jungle. Uh, <laughs> only, you know, speaking of Duff having, like, good taste in people. He's got good taste in talented people. But Scott is an extremely screwed up front man okay he's addicted to heroin and crack um he's an erratic guy you think do you think that that was on the application when they asked him yeah. like how what is your relationship to heroin and crack like and he's like yeah both a lot all the time and they're <laughs> like, great uh so he's super super strung out on drugs and it's kind of affecting like their ability to sort of practice together and write songs together even though like everyone's really excited about what the band could be so duff decides to take him to the remote cabin of one of his friends from the dojo uh to help him dry out and they have this regimen where they're like meditating in the morning they're training they're doing martial arts training they're going on runs they're eating healthy foods uh it's a regimen that they call man camp um and it actually works so after lots of physical can i can i go to duff mckagan's man camp um 
Yes. Uh, man camp, typical day. Breakfast, meditate outdoors, jump rope, stretch, work the punching bags, train on technique, lunch, run and lift weights, work on the wooden dummies. Practice Tai Chi, write, dinner, talk with Sefu Joseph, that's the guy from the dojo, and write more, read, bed, man camp. Sounds great. Sounds awesome. I would like to, do, I would like to go to man camp. Um, it works. Scott sobers up, is ready to rock out. Uh, the super group is named Velvet Revolver because after LA Guns and Guns N' Roses, it seems that these people are not allowed to be in a band that doesn't reference firearms. Yeah, firearms. <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of other options for them. Uh, no, but you get it because it's like soft like velvet, but hard like a gun. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, hard, the hard and soft, man. Guns and Roses, Velvet Revolver, uh, Silk Hammer. Macrame uh, Brass Knuckles. Cotton Knife. <laughs> Cotton Knife sounds good, honestly. Um, so Velvet Revolver. They release one album. I, this is around the time where I remember seeing Velvet Revolver getting written about in Rolling Stone. It's like the mid. I remember. I remember Velvet Revolver coming out mm-hmm. and there being like ads for it, like it was something that was going to be big, mm-hmm. and then it was not. Yeah, people were very excited. I feel like the idea Slash of this is going to play guitar again, right? I think people were like, this was a time when supergroups were really. Now it's just like everyone good is featured on everyone else's album but like the idea of putting together a group i mean it's basically like kanye and jay-z doing like watch the throne sure 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 i almost called it game of thrones (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, that'd be sweet too so but like velvet revolver hits in 2007 mm -hmm. which is like slash is back he's gonna play guitar and Mm -hmm. duff's gonna be there and that guy from stone temple pilots yeah but it's like it's 2007 and it really is the time of like where the, this was being whispered in the winds, mm-hmm. but nobody was quite saying it yet. That like we don't care about guitars yeah, anymore. Sorry, guitars are over in music. I don't know when uh, Skrillex put out his first album, but uh, like it maybe was around then. Yeah, um, and it it is uh, it is of the time in that Revolver's first single that got serious attention was on the soundtrack to Ang Lee's The Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Uh, no, I think it's sorry. called "Set Me Free." Uh, like, are, and that's wait, are they talking about the Hulk? The Hulk within. The Hulk within. <laughs> I wish that song was called "Unleash Your Hulk." Unleash your inner Hulk. Uh, it's just a bad combination of things, like a, mm-hmm. uh, a group hitting at the wrong time, hooking their star to the wrong trailer. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so the. This happens. Uh, they manage to record an album, but then Scott eventually relapses, and Duff actually has a relapse as well. Oh no! Um, so it's a, like an interesting sort of self-analysis why he thinks this happened. Uh, this is right after getting Scott detoxed. He says, "At this point, I should have taken a step back and assessed the situation. Never before had I felt I had so many people depending on me. I was now juggling being a good father and husband with trying to get a guy sober so he could do the same. But I was also doing this because I saw real possibilities for this new band with Scott as our singer. Other people recognized the potential there too, and I was fielding phone call after phone call saying I had to make this happen. Uh, with the national exposure, there was a lot of interest in Velvet Revolver. Of course, everything hinged on the band actually existing. For the first time ever, I was mixing." as mixing the spiritual healing of martial arts with commerce it's never a good idea don't mix the spiritual healing of martial arts with commerce yeah um and we know that now and i will never i will never mix those two again but you're seeing you're seeing uh duff really go from being like the kid 
to being the daddy. Mm-hmm. And he, it's a lot of pressure to deal with. Yeah, he's got a wife and wife and kids. And, and even when he was in GNR, mm-hmm. like he could kind of be like the guy on the side. Yeah. He was like, I'm just I'm just the good base boy. Mm-hmm. This is like this is Slash and Axel have like the the responsibility roles. Mm-hmm. Yep. They're the engine that drives this thing and I just you know, me and Matt need just need to keep, you know, our our little bass and drum wheels turning. Yeah. Behind it. Now he's got to keep everyone in the pocket. Yeah. Now he, yeah, he's not just about keeping himself in the pocket. He's got to keep scott in the pocket too. yeah his, so his, his baby boy scott his little baby boy um so he's this is what kind of makes him feel like cocky like he's like oh i got i was running all of this shit and uh so i was thinking it was sort of on top of myself and like once you help an addict out like it made him think that he wasn't as much of an addict like he's got a shit together and so the way he relapses he takes a xanax that he had a stash of that was meant for flying panic attacks um, and he said that before he had taken three, three, Zan- three quarters, like a single quarter of a Xanax three times in his life. So like minuscule amounts, um, which is kind of interesting for somebody who, you know, has done crack and heroin and everything that like he really kept the um, like, benzodiazepines on a very like, short leash. Okay, I've got, what do I need for this trip? Uh, I've got my, I'm going to be gone three days. So that's three gallons of vodka. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe like a, a like, brick of cocaine. Yeah, just it's to be gonna safe. be like one brick of cocaine and then um, one quarter of a zinc. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so he is kind of like stressing one day, and he takes a, a whole Xanax, and he really likes it. And then in the course of or the course of two weeks, he goes from taking a pill to twenty two a day. Oof, boy. He he <laughs> says the, like... the old tolerance came back, raring to go, and he went. He just like d- slid down slid or whatever backslid you, you very quickly th- you gotta think that even after that one week where he's just up to 22 he's like wow this ex- escalated very quickly yes yeah and he he said that and so he breaks down um he admits he needs help he had, he regains his sobriety by finally going to rehab uh and you know that takes a lot for him to admit that he's still not he's going to be an addict for the rest of his life and he needs to think of it that way um and he was also at this time he he was not going to the dojo as much because like he was rehearsing and touring and he let it slip. can't mix the spiritual aspects of martial arts with commerce don't ever that's the if there's don't, one takeaway from this book that's it don't do it yeah not even once not even once um <laughs> uh, real revolver releases one more sort of stilted album um before problems with scott end things for good and unfortunately we know, we know what happened to scott he died last year of a heroin overdose um so this shit is serious uh so it doesn't sorry. always I'm sorry duff sorry duff um duff tried and i think that's it's interesting you that you can't hold yourself responsible duff well i don't think he he does um Clearly, some people can. It's it's rare that Duff managed to. Obviously, he went to rehab the second time, but the first time he didn't even go to rehab. Like he just kind of did it on his Ruled own. Himself. Um, Impressive. Which is a very like sort of like martial arts movie yeah. mindset of just like it's only you. Uh, so at this point, things are good. Like he's getting his degree. He's got his wife. He's got two kids now. He has another daughter. Um, like life is good. He's becoming Mr. Mr. Daddy man. Um, and he's gained so much business and economic prowess at this point. He's ready to start a wealth management company called Meridian Rock. And it isn't expressed in the book, but I think you've said that the reason it's called Meridian Rock is because it's, it's, uh, it's called Meridian Rock based on his dual interest in, uh, Cormac, the works of Cormac McCarthy, yes. notably, uh, blood, blood Meridian. Meridian and 
rock music and just rock just rocking out i believe i believe yes so yes he's forming meridian rock because when your band falls apart start a wealth management company he and his business partner go to london and they're interviewing candidates for fund managers they get this really fancy hotel room in london that's like on the top floor uh he says normally he wouldn't live that large um but they're going to use it as like a conference room so it needs to be fancy as shit um and then he i think the way he finds out is like he's calling to like check in or he comes and checks in and the like butler i assume it's a butler because it's like london and it's a nice hotel the butler's like are you are you in town for a show mr mckagan and he's like nope i'm just here to start my my wealth management company he's like are you positive he's like yeah i'm not playing a show he's like oh well that's interesting i guess i should tell you that axel rose is staying in the hotel room next to you (laughs) so he just randomly ends up you know of all the fancy palatial hotels in all the world he ends up right next to axel who's playing a show at the o2 arena and Duff like knocks on his door. He's like, let's, we should just bury the hatchet. Knocks on his door. Like Axel's like getting ready to get in the shower. Uh, they like sort of, they just hash it out. It's like a total civil conversation. Uh, Duff finds that he harbors. They hadn't talked for 10 years at this point. Can I, can I inject something? Mm-hmm. I think that that is a grossly unethical conduct by that butler. It's interesting. I feel like butlers are supposed to be the soul of discretion. Yeah. And he was not. Don't reveal who's in the door next door to him. But he... But maybe but the, the, he loves Guns N' Roses so much that he was trying to foster a reunion. The, the butler takes off his, like, uh, tailcoat and, like, rolls up his French cuff <laughs> sleeves and there's a Guns N' Roses tattoo on his bicep. He's like, <laughs> I, I had the only thing that would make me betray my butler coat. It's the love of rock and roll. <laughs> well, it's funny. I thought you were describing that he was he was defrocking himself because he <laughs> like he's like I've got to take off my uh, my tuxedo and my uh, cummerbund and all that because he I can no longer be a butler. I have to do this for the good of society he and for rock and roll. Stand in the way of fate. Uh, yes. to bring these people together, but then afterwards had to commit butler seppuku. Yes, <laughs> he has to hand his tray back in. Uh, to the butler uh, depot. So they bury the hatchet. Uh, Duff says he harbors no resentment or regrets towards uh, toward Axel from the olden days, which I think is pretty mature. Um, and Duff and his wife go see the show and he gets pulled yeah. on stage for a couple You know songs. that part when you made me, when you drunkenly tricked me into signing away my rights to this band I a quarter created? I don't blame you for that. Water under the bridge. <laughs> Well, that's what martial arts does to you. It makes you, you right. if you get kicked in the face by a dude a thousand times a day, you can't be mad at that guy, right? Because like he's just helping you train. That's true. So like Axel was just kicking Duff in the face every day. Yes. And in it was a, helping Duff way, become a better person. Yes, it's true. Yeah. It, he would never have gotten to the point where he was uh, starting Meridian Rock Financial yeah. if it wasn't for the financial trickery of Guns N' Roses. Yep. Yeah. Very literally. Very literally. Um he sees actual show and he gets pulled on stage for a couple songs and he enjoys it. Um, and so at this point, like everything is pretty much fallen into place. His, he's got his money. He's got his wife. He's got his family. He's got a dog. I think, um, I don't know what happened to the pig. <laughs> RIP nameless pot belly pig. He doesn't even name. I mean, it. you know, you're in rock and roll excess when you're just like casually acquiring farm animals mm-hmm. that then disappear as quickly as they come. Yes. Hey man, remember when you had that cow? Nah, no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> we don't talk about the cow anymore. Yeah. Um, he ends his book with a 
what he calls a moment of great humility. So he says, a moment of great humility came for me a few years ago after I played a huge stadium in Buenos Aires, Argentina with Velvet Revolver. I was in the midst of finishing an online course at the time and I had a question. <laughs> on, the, on stage. On stage, right. Yeah, he's taking a little time for a drum solo. He comes out, he comes out and he's like, hello, Buenos Aires. You all like mooks? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, He was finishing an online course at the time. He had a question for the professor of the course. He told his wife that he had to call him uh, when we got back to the hotel. Uh, We were getting a police escort back because the fans there can get a little um overzealous. When we got back to the room, fans had surrounded the hotel singing soccer chants modified for the occasion. That's pretty awesome. I had time I called it. Velvet, velvet revolver, (laughs) velvet revolver. Velvet Revolver. Uh, I don't know if that song was even out then. Um, I timed my call to catch this professor during his office hours. When he picked up the phone, I said, Hi, Professor Green. This is Duff McKagan in your Business 330 class, and I wanted to ask you a question about this week's assignment. The (laughs) professor takes off his tweed jacket with the leather patches and rolls up his uh, plaid uh, shirt to reveal a Guns N' Roses. Not even a little bit, man. Uh... (laughs) I'm calling from out of the country. I was hoping to make this quick. I just played a stadium, been given a police escort, and now people were chanting my name on the street outside. Duff who, he replied. So he doesn't <laughs> give a shit. So that's the moment of humility is that he, it doesn't matter how big he is at the end of the day. He's Econ still- professors might not know who you are. He's still just Duff who. Um, and he uses that in his life. So that is the life of Duff McKagan. Uh, that's great. Duff seems like such a sweetheart. I I was when I read this I was just like oh Duff is so nice like what a nice boy yeah he's just, he's just an, a little Irish boy from Seattle trying to make good he seems like he was caught between two things of one being like a kind of personal anxiety to need to prove things and an anxiety between uh, a broken house uh, that I think is common for people from broken houses or uh, split families yeah to be the the like good kid that tries to put everything together mm-hmm. so I think that it seems like in the band he 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 seemed. That what we were talking about earlier, that he just wanted to be, as long as he stayed in the pocket himself, Mm -hmm. like everything else around him, he could just like let it all play out and it would be fine. Yeah. But um, it seems like that cycle cut up with him and through the miraculous exploding pancreas, he kind of was able to break himself from it and and put himself in the driver's seat. I think that that's a good story. I think that, you know, passivity only serves you to a certain degree. If you are the kind of like person who's like chill and everyone likes you and you can sort of form the gel around these groups, that's great. But if you let people walk all over you and, you know, cause you to nearly drink yourself to death because you're so tired of your fans yelling at you because you're late <laughs> like that, that's not, like you got to draw the line somewhere. And also, I think the most important lesson we learned is never mix martial arts with commerce. Yes, you cannot. You cannot. No. Ugh. Anyway, the life of Duff, I think we can all learn some lessons from it. Wow. Uh, so we've been going for a long time. Uh, what else do we do on this, this podcast? I don't know. I do think we, we do say, anything else? I think we say goodnight. And there might be a little something after this also where I'm like, follow us on Facebook. Like us on Instagram. <laughs> you know, those, Instagram. all those places where you get audio content. Hey, I figured out what we do at the end of the podcast. Slash took the time to actually set up all our online links. Uh, remember to like and subscribe us on iTunes, and you should rate and review the show too, uh, but only if you're going to give positive reviews. I only want to see positive vibes on the review page. High ratings, high reviews. Please do. You can also, you can also follow us on Twitter at andintropod. Uh, we're going to start posting our stuff there. 
And you can send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail.com. That's andintroducingpod, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, and you can check out our SoundCloud, where you are maybe listening to this right now. I don't know. At soundcloud.com slash and-intro-pod. Uh, we're going to be posting these every two weeks, uh, trying to get the times down more around hour and a half, hour 40, uh, make them a little more manageable. We're just doing this for fun, but if you want to get in touch with us and uh, tell us what we're doing right or wrong, how uh, good we are at our uh, goofs and how bad we are at our pronunciations, sure, uh, come yell at us online. Molly's uh, on Twitter, at Miss Molly Mary, and I am at Say What Again. Uh, we are both extremely online, so come yell at us. Uh, hope you enjoyed the show. We're going to try to make them quicker as we go on, and um, see you soon for more hot content. See, watch our uh, apartment's live stream on Periscope yeah. all the time. Uh, subscribe to us on CISO <laughs> Eventually. in the far future. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we'll have social media posts, but um, join us eventually for more tales of uh, rock and roll or otherwise uh, decadence, depravity, and also ultimately learning. Yes. Because the real rock and roll are the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> All okay. right. Bye, Molly. Bye. Bye.